Converter, the most powerful weapon in the universe. You cannot resist me. Not recommended for impressionable children. A stellar converter, you say? <laughs> oh boy! Welcome what, to what's that from? Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. Ah, okay. Yeah. So the Seven Samurai knockoff, Star Wars knockoff. Roger Corbin, classic, with John Boy Walton, and John Saxon as the villain. Welcome back, everybody. We took a week off, uh, a much-needed break for everybody, Uh, and uh, yeah, this is episode, what are we, where are we at, 16 now, episode 16 of It Came From Cleveland? 17. 17, 17, holy God. So, uh, yeah, so this, for this, the, the first week of August 2021, uh, we have a lot of awesome uh, birthday stuff as we have made our tradition on this program. Lots of celebrity birthdays uh, talking about tonight. Uh, Joe's going to grind down on a couple uh, later on for us in the program. One, uh, Martin Sheen, living legend Martin Sheen, uh, uh, brother of Joe Estevez, of course. <laughs> and i uh, got a little yeah, oh god <laughs> we'll have a little joe estevez trivia for you later uh with joe's clips too oh. and uh and of course you'll be talking the uh what well, just recently passed peter o'toole um i mean worked up until the, the very end what a what a professional yes yes he did and uh he did the very last lassie movie in 2005 Oh, okay. That I didn't know. So, um, and uh, also, uh, Miles is going to tell us a little, we're going to have a little history lesson on uh, the horrors of Hiroshima. Uh, and because, Nagasaki. And Nagasaki, yes. Uh, the, 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 uh, what's the anniversary of, of that? Uh, how many years now? The 6th and the 9th. Uh, let's see, it happened in 45. So... That would be. <laughs> you were supposed to do five years <laughs> plus twenty one. Seventy six. Seventy six. There you go. So and uh, and of course Michelle and I are going to. This was I, I'm 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 uh, uh, stealing Michelle's great idea to talk about John Saxon. I'm just I'm uh, uh, I'm getting in the sidecar for. <laughs> Actually, uh, you. you- you recommended him to me because I, I didn't connect the connection. I'm not a good person with names. I just, I, I need to hear the voice. Well, and once I realized who it was, I'm like, oh, hell, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, John Saxon is probably most famous for being the main uh, antagonist in Enter the Dragon uh, with Bruce Lee. 
Yes. And uh, interesting, uh, you know, stuff about that. I didn't know how athletic John Saxon was because, you know, he actually is a black belt, had a black belt in karate. And he just passed away uh, last year, I believe. Um, but, uh, you know, he's one of those faces, you know, he's been in so many different things. And, and Michelle's got a, a good little history lesson. Uh, uh, in the form of trailers, and I have some supplemental stuff to go along the way, and some really interesting trivia uh, later on um, about, in Miles, this will be interesting to you, and, and Joe. Um, John Saxon worked with Gene Roddenberry on some television projects uh, in the 70s. Uh, it, that, and there's some really cool history behind this. So I, I think you guys will you guys will dig it. I actually like his original name. I think his original name was spectacular. Well, what is that? I, I did not uh, notice uh, that he had changed It's Carmine Orico. I think that's how you pronounce the last name. Very oh, Italian. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can see that now. Um, but, uh, you know, I found, but I found some, some, you know, there are not a lot of interviews out there with him. There's a lot of more recent ones. Um, from like conventions and stuff like that. And all the interviewers are terrible. Um, you know, there were a couple that I was able to get some from, but I mean, the interviewers were just more interested in them being, Hey, I'm a cool interviewer, you know, rather than, you know, letting John Saxon speak. So it was, it was really, you know, I, I couldn't find that much archival stuff related to the films that he'd done either. So there, there were some, um, what was that early television series he did? Um, I found an interview for. Uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what was it. Um, uh, he was in a lot of them. It's hard to. <laughs> yeah, there was there was, but you know he was in you know, uh, you know he was in movies that Dario Argento made and stuff like that. So yeah, a, but, uh, a couple other Italian directors as well and, and stuff. So yeah. So, uh, but no, he's, uh, you know, uh, 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 I'm trying to see what, uh, what his television, uh, what that show was called. I, I just posted his magazine cover, cover from teen when he was a young heartthrob. Ooh. Ah, so, um, uh, the bold ones, the new doctors, uh, that that's there. I found some interviews about that, but we're not really going to talk about that. Um, but yeah, he's done, you know, he did a lot of great television appearances. Actually, one that we'll talk about later that traumatized me as a child, too. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk about the inspiration of that, that uh, uh, how he traumatized me. He, he, his character in a TV show inspired a toy that I had when I was a kid, too. So, uh, fascinating stuff all around. But yeah, so... Uh, but yeah, so, uh, uh, John Saxon passed away. He was born August 5th, 1936, passed away last year, July 25th, 2020, uh, at the age of 83. And, uh, he, he had, he was active up until 2017. Uh, you know, he, he did a lot of amazing stuff and, but his, his early films, I mean, I, I couldn't believe some of the movies that he was in. Uh, that, you know, once Michelle started doing the research and getting the trailers ready, uh, I was kind of blown away. So, um, oh, and yes, we will talk about Battle Beyond the Stars later. And in case anybody's interested, <laughs> I found a VHS sealed copy at an estate sale the other day. 
that will be available in our store on eBay soon. <laughs> so that's too funny. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hilarious. Every time uh, we do, you know, these shows, um, you know, I I start looking at the the inventory that we have, and I'm like, oh, we have that movie, we have that movie, and you know, it's uh, um, you know, it's funny. So. But uh, but yeah, the uh, uh, the first trailer you have for us, Michelle. Why don't you set that up a little bit for us? Okay, this is one of the earlier movies that he was in. Um, this is back in uh, it's uh, nineteen sixty three, and it's a Mario Bava uh, director directed this film, and oh, it's yeah. kind of yeah, it's so it's a very uh, spooky kind of. Um, basically, an American tourist witnesses a murder in Rome and soon finds herself and her suitor, played by John Saxton, caught up in a series of killings. And it's very creepy. It it seems you know it's it's comedy, horror, and mystery. It's it's real, but it's more I think on the the horror and mystery side. So, and it's called The Evil Eye. <laughs> supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me! She hated me! Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Miss Dawson, have you ever seen a murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're, you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye like relentless tides reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. great trailer uh that's just the the perfect style of trailer that translates well audio wise onto yeah it does market. um i try to look for those sometimes it's not possible but yeah. this one really <laughs> had had this one had a nice uh, a nice uh a voiceover to it which always helps oh yeah yeah you gotta love the the, the good narrators I, I mean modern trailers are such a disappointment when you try it you know, uh, because they've they've given up. There are no, there's no pitch man on the on the trailers anymore. Yeah, I think once we lost uh, La Fontaine, things kind of went downhill. Oh yeah, oh yeah. 
So now they just, you know, want to have, you know, deep, booming bass sounds that rattle you out of your seat. <laughs> you know? Right, which don't translate well to radio at no, all. No, <laughs> no. Must make your dogs nervous. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but this is a fun little movie. I forgot about this movie. And uh, when I went back into my John Saxon rabbit hole, this is what I found. I'm like, this is kind of cool. You know, it's got that great Italian, uh, that, that, foreign feel to it but it's yeah. still translate uh, relatable to you know the american audience i really enjoyed it oh yeah yeah you gotta love the i guess the spaghetti horror um stuff you know yes um but uh you know and, and again uh the you know this and you know because uh, that was i'm sorry you, you said the director's name and i'm forgetting it um Mario Bava. Bava, yeah. Mario Bava and uh, Dario Argento are kind of of the same school, you know. Um, and uh, and it's cool that, you know, because he worked uh, with uh, Argento on Tenebrae uh, a couple decades later, 1982. Um, yep, yep, yep. is a great movie, too. Um, I Any Dario Argento movie, I highly recommend to anybody. Um, they're they're garishly gory so you know like now it's it's almost like you know not believable uh kind of gory and and i, I just love that kind of stuff that's some so. stunning use of colors and situations oh yeah oh my gosh what he did suspiria is alone you know and by the way suspiria should never have been remade i did watch the remake and they just should have called it something else you know. Yeah, I didn't mind the remake, but yeah, as I said, you know, it's kind of like calling "Interview with the Vampire" "Interview with the Vampire." It's not really. <laughs> yeah. So, there are certain things you just shouldn't remake. I, I I will be a curmudgeon and say that. Right. But um, so the next one you have picked out is an interesting one. Oh yeah, Queen of Blood. Now this is. <laughs> This is one of those sci-fi horror movies that you're just looking at and going, why? You know, <laughs> why? <laughs> at least, you know, I enjoyed, like, Plan 9 for Outer Space just because it's campy. But this oh, yeah. this movie, like, it, it was trying to be campy, even though campy wasn't a thing back then. Mm -hmm. And it was just so awful. But, you know, it's it's a staple. People know this movie. Oh and it's god, the Queen and, of Blood. And, oh, and the in the movie poster for this is just insanely cool. Yeah. Um and it, it also stars uh, Basil Rathbone, uh, which is uh pretty awesome. I mean what a um what a great uh co star for an early role, you know? Uh, yeah, was... and and it's really cool because he's a recognizable voice. Even mm -hmm. back then, he was, and yeah. you know, and and those those hawkish features. I've always loved him. Oh yeah, and this movie was also called Planet of Blood. Uh, you gotta love that when they when they you know movies had multiple names back in the day. Uh, old Dennis Hopper was in this too. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but yeah, so this is uh, this is it. Queen of Blood, 1966. When technology reaches the perfection of interplanetary commuting and daring astronauts are venturing beyond to far distant galaxies, scientists will still be searching for the mysteries of the unknown. We have amazing news for you. It turns out they landed on Phobos. Who's they? The astronauts from the other planet. The rescue ship landed here and one of them is alive. You understand how important it is to keep her well and to bring her back with you safely. 
What evil power pulsates the strange ovum the queen is trying to smuggle to Earth? We can't let these creatures breed on Earth. Alan, that's not for us to decide. Queen of Blood. A tantalizing, mystifying enigma. We have a good supply of blood plasma with us. We'll use that to feed her. And if we run out of plasma, Commander? This was released, of course, by American International Pictures with as a double feature with Bloodbath. And but of course. <laughs> a little interesting bit of trivia, the director, Curtis Harrington, of this film, uh, insisted that, uh, that Ridley Scott drew inspiration from this movie for 1979's Alien uh, with a much more expensive and elaborate uh, budget. So, there you go. Yeah, that... That doesn't surprise me. So, uh, it, but, you know, I mean, because really, Alien is kind of like the, the, it's just like all these old movies, except they introduce that gross, you know, impregnation kind of, you know, psychosexual um, angle to the film that didn't exist in a lot of these older horror films. Right. So... Uh, but no, this is great. And, and again, what a gorgeous movie poster that is. It is pretty cool. I was, uh, um, it's, 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 it's one of those really nice campy ones. You know, I kind of miss those. Yeah. It's right up there with the amazing she creature or whatever that, that movie's called. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, no, that's a good one. That's a real good one. Um, so, uh, um, is this a, did you ever see this one, Joe? No, I, I haven't. I, I'm not a. Uh, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. I just know that you were traumatized at a young age seeing some uh, sci-fi like this. So. <laughs> oh yeah, it was a uh, Queen of Outer Space. Queen of Outer Space. Oh, not Queen of Blood. that can yeah. traumatize anybody. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'm sorry. I'm I'm eating while I'm doing the show. I apologize to everyone. That's okay. But. Um, yeah, so, uh, uh, but then I think, um, arguably, this is probably, I would say, his second or third biggest role next to um, uh, Enter the Dragon and Friday the Friday the 13th franchise. 
but Michelle, by all means, uh, set it up. A Canadian film from 19... 19- oh, 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 yeah. Um, uh, we're talking about Black Christmas now? Mm-hmm. Yes. Black Christmas is an iconic one for people, um, especially people uh, who are fans of the slasher horror genre, because yeah. it they, they consider that one of the first, if, you know, um, along with, you know, others... Uh, around the same time period to be the first authentic slasher movie. Yeah. So, um, and Black Christmas is also fun because it's got Margot Kidder in it as well. Yes. And, um, and, you know, you know, the, the, that ever present theme of, um, uh, somebody targeting sorority girls. Who would have oh, thunk? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> can't get over that trope. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, Black Christmas. And then I have a little interview clip I can play for you after this too, regarding Black Christmas. My mother's taking a place up at Mont Holly. Does anyone else want to come? Yeah. Sounds like fun. Great. How about you, Claire? Uh, no thanks, Barb. I've made some other plans. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell, ring. Mom, hang on, I can't hear you. No, we're just having a little party. Now the Hey, quiet! It's him again! Jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lambacai? They could use a little of this. Yeah, I was supposed to meet my daughter here. Her name's Claire Harrison. Do you know her? I'm sure you'll find her at the fraternity house. Have you seen Claire today? No one knows where she is. No, not since last night. Hello? Hello? Some of the girls are over here today, but I haven't seen Claire. Well, what the hell are you planning to do about it? 90% of the time, girls are reported missing from the college. They're at a cabin somewhere with a boyfriend. A high school girl's been murdered. Claude? obviously upset about something. I'd like to talk to him. Can you tell me where I might reach him? The caller is in the house. Oh, come on, this is a sorority house, not a convent. Are you up there? Jess? You can't rape a townie. Nice. Obviously, a more modern trailer, probably for the one of the anniversary releases, um, uh, or a remaster, what have you. But yeah, that's uh, that's a, a, a fun, powerful trailer. Yeah, that's why I chose that trailer because um, the other trailers for the, the for the, the official trailers were a little bit more uh, vague, and they didn't have uh, a lot of good sound to it. So yeah, yeah. But uh, no, that's uh, the, you know that's that's another one of those classics that you know you just uh, uh, you know you it never leaves your mind. Uh, and uh, let me uh, let me find this clip for you real quick. Uh, I uh, around the twenty fifth anniversary of the film uh, or twenty seventh, I believe, 
because uh, apparently there was uh, there were some snags, especially with the American release with uh, Black Christmas. Uh, uh, John Saxon really didn't go into that, but um, I just found a, a you know wanted to hear him talk a little bit about the film. And again, this this Canadian talk show he was on. Uh, the host was terrible. He made cracks about Margot Kidder and stuff like that when because she was suffering from, you know, she was having a mental health crisis. Uh, but I cut that stuff out. I didn't want to. Yeah, you know, that that's just any, wrong. Didn't want to have anything mean spirited in here. But um, yeah, this is. Uh, oh, oh, let me see. Where is it? Um, no, that's not the one. I've got a few of them here. And, uh, or, no, maybe I didn't get that one. No, I think I just abandoned that one because I was, it, it just wasn't enough content. Um, but, uh, he, de there is a little bit, um, no, actually we'll save that one too. We'll, we'll save that for later. Uh, but yeah, that Canadian interviewer was a jerk. So I was like, no, forget him. So, well, it looks like we'll, we'll have time to play one more of the trailers because we have a pretty short one before uh, we get to... The uh, I'm recycling a uh, an early Kill the Hippies music block because uh, Mort, uh, I haven't been in communication with Mort lately because he's been busy and I've been busy. Uh, so we're going to go back to the beginning and uh, play one of the earlier uh, music blocks from them. And um, yeah, he's camping right now, so I didn't want to bug him. But yeah, so uh, the next trailer, Michelle, we got a short one here from 1978. Oh, yes, we do. Um, for everybody that has a phobia or an allergy to stinging insects, this is not the movie for you. It basically, you know, it came around the same time as other movies around uh, around that era. We're dealing with the killer bee issue type thing, you know, like the swarm and, yeah. you know, and, and such like that. So, but this is called The Bees. a new strain and though it's out of control this is an ultimatum Either we share this world with them, or we vanish as a species. Would you mind? You're not listening to me. Now you leave them no choice. Ah, there you go. The bees. <laughs> so <laughs> I do find something ironic about this movie is that back then they thought the bees were going to come and kill us, you know, because they were swarming and creating these huge, you know, hives that are just appearing all over the south at the time. Yeah. But nowadays we are killing off the bees, and that's gonna we're gonna kill ourselves because we're doing it. Yep, so. <laughs> we sure are. We sure are. So anyway, uh, I think everybody uh, hold that thought about the bees. Um, but no, that yeah, check it out. Uh, uh, lots of great movie recommendations starring John Saxon. Thank you for uh, getting all these trailers together, Michelle. But well, we do have to go to the break. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to recommend the bees to anybody. Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! 
Yes, even Nick Cage does not like the bees. <laughs> yeah, that's how bad it is. You watch it and you're like, my eyes, my eyes. All right, we're go going to the break. We'll be right back.
the friendly voice of Cleveland. Okay. I forgot about my Joe Okay drop. Okay. <laughs> so. That's how you doing? a good one. Okay. How you doing, Joe? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I heard you the first time. Okay. No, I okay. heard you. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome back, uh, Joe. And uh, okay. looking forward to hearing. Uh, I have a special. Uh, I got a special Martin Sheen drop for you for the intro for next hour. Um, I can't wait. So, <laughs> uh, robots are still on vacation too, everybody. But Adam Hebert is not. He's been busy working on the Monkey King saga. We've got uh, the, the. I think the final chapter of the Monkey King uh, tonight uh, on our next break. And uh, of course, welcome back, Miles. Uh, you beating the heat down there? So far, uh, yeah, taking my vacation days, spreading them out, enjoying it. Very cool, very cool. So, and Michelle, uh, we're back in the saddle here, the John Saxon saddle. Uh, we, we're we're flat, flash forward to uh, some of his 80s films. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite amazed at this this guy's catalog. Um, oh, just, just, can you hear the, the filter going on in the background, or is it okay? Oh, it's fine. I have fans running, okay. so I don't care. We're, we're, right. we're, you know, not like we have professional sound studios or anything. We just do what we right, do. right. I just want to make sure it's a, it's a HEPA filter and it's keeping keeping me breathing right now. So, well, um, that's more important than anything. So, go yes, on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and one of the things he became iconic for is playing a detective or a police officer. Yeah, an authority figure. Yeah, and he could either play it straight or he could play it creepy, and which mm -hmm. is funny because sometimes they use him as a red herring in some of his movies, yeah. make you think he might be the one that's causing the issue. Yeah. So, um, but um, the movie, uh, one of the movies that got him started in that role, um, uh, other than the bees, he played he played a researcher in the bees, but in in this movie called Blood Beach in 1980. He actually was the head of the police department. And uh, it's a very good, nice, strong role for him. And it was a very weird movie. It was kind of like uh, combining humanoids from the deep and a beach movie. It was hey, really uh, creepy. That's a that's a winner, winner, winning combination any day of the week. So Yes. So, here we go. Pretty, isn't it? The beaches of L.A playground of america until this beach turned into yeah, a living nightmare you said creature why did you use that word i don't know what would you call it blood beach man yeah right on uh -huh. blood beach the beach is a weird beat for us cops you've got the kids the old people the street fiddlers <laughs> those singles uh the crazies all lost in their own world. There was every form of human life on this beach. Madras Bermudas, bleeding madras. They were kind of old, but you know, they were his favorite pair. They were still in good condition. But under the beach, there was this, I don't know, this horrible thing. And we still haven't figured it out. What the hell are we looking for? I don't know. But maybe if we dig deep enough, we'll find out. We police always look for the obvious, but this wasn't normal. Nah, not even for California. 
doctors figure that there's been considerable brain damage. How considerable? Vegetable soup. Oh, God. <laughs> when something like this is chasing you. If it's human, or even if it's animal, it's got to have a place to go back to. It's kind of sad the way things have changed, huh, Mr. Selden? was any hope we didn't have it we didn't know a damn thing it's when you thought it was safe to go back in the water you can't get to it uh. there comes a time when you throw out all the rules and you make your move <laughs> blood beach it's an okay place to visit but I wouldn't want to die there. I can't think about my feet! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Blood Beach. David Huffman, Mariana Hill, John Saxon, and Burke Young as Lieutenant Boyko. Blood Beach. Where the water may be the safest place to be. What kind of brain damage? Vegetable soup! <laughs> And that's everybody's favorite character actor, Burt Young. So, you know, yeah. he's just, you know, he's playing this, this, this disgraced cop from Chicago and he's always mouthing off and always getting people upset with him. And oh. it's very, very funny. But then, you know, John Staxon delivers the line just when he thought it was safe to get back into the water. You can't get there. You know, there you yeah. go. <laughs> that's hysterical. So, uh, so yeah, this, uh, I, I think I saw this a long time ago on TV, uh, but it's been, it's been a long time. I think, I think I saw it at a friend's on HBO back in the eighties. Yeah. I think I saw it like in the late eighties on HBO, but I remember my first, uh, memory of this movie was seeing the movie poster. And I so wanted to see this movie because it looked like it was going to be fun but yeah. i was way too young for that sort of movie so well <laughs> <point>. yeah so <laughs> uh, but yeah oh that that second one the the second poster that's the one that i remember yeah i think yes. i think we rented that actually um so because that was that was on the cover of the vhs tapes i love that first one though that's really cool i've never seen yeah that the hand just reaching out yeah yeah no yeah. that's great um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, this is, this is great. Um, uh, but I yeah, think they, hmm? I think they made another version of this film, although it was loosely based on it and they didn't credit it as being part of the decision making process, but it was, I think yeah. it was called like the beach or something like that, or, or the, the thirsty sand or something. It was like done in 2014 or something. It was pretty bad, but it, cause it had a lot of CGI. And there was there wasn't something pulling people underneath the sand. It was the sand actually coming up in these little tendrils and sucking the life out of people. It was mm. really weird. Yeah. So but yeah, they, I prefer this version. Yeah, 
Yeah, the, this, uh, and, and I'll tell you what, I bet you anything that this one on VHS is probably worth a small fortune. That's yeah, all it I is see. Because it's, not, it's not released right now. You can't buy it. Yeah. At, at really. And I've been looking, I was looking at a DVD or something of it the other day. It was like 200 and something bucks. I'm like, no. <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. So, yeah, and uh, you can't stream it unless yeah. it's, I, I was watching it on a really bad uh, YouTube video. It was awful. It was oh, and by the, by the way, uh, uh, speaking of HBO, Honey Beastmaster's on. Uh, Susan and I <laughs> in our, our massive, uh, uh, for those listening who don't know, I know these, I told these guys already because I was breathlessly excited about this. Um, we made a massive haul from an estate sale last week. Of all of, of uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sealed VHS and DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff, mostly VHS. Somebody else swooped in and got the DVDs and Blu-rays, but we still got a lot. Um, but yeah, I would say probably, probably so, at, le- at least a thousand pieces, at least. And uh, in there is kind of a holy grail, a sealed copy of Beastmaster on VHS. Which fetches a pretty penny on oh, I uh, bet. Facebook, or not? Not Facebook, eBay. Uh, yeah, like we're talking like over three hundred dollars. So, um, and you know, and a funny thing is, we just sold something. Um, and, and I, I, I hate to digress into our store, but we made back. We've already made back about uh, a quarter of our investment. Uh, in one night, we had 15 sales overnight and early this morning. And uh, what we sold this one thing that's just crazy. Uh, we sold a trailer, a VHS tape that came out in 2000. And it's a 10 minute long trailer, like a store demo tape or something, for a video game. Okay. And people had it listed up there. And they, granted, we, we paid roughly about a quarter a piece for everything. Um, and uh, we, um, I'm trying to find the, uh, I'm, I'm getting logged in. But the uh, we sold this thing today. We, we undercut a few people because somebody else was trying to sell it for 150 and another person was trying to sell it for 120. So we put it up for 90. And uh, it sold today. And, you know, so we... Technically, we got maybe about 75 bucks after fees and shipping, but it was a 10-minute-long trailer <laughs> for a movie, uh, for, for a, a video game. And um, I'm, uh, oh gosh, uh, let me see. I'm, I'm going to my orders, and uh, I need to find them. So, But yeah, it's, it, I mean, seriously, we, we got... 80 bucks or 90 bucks yeah 90 bucks before all the fees and everything and um gosh i don't know why i can't do this i'm a moron let me play the next let me play the next trailer for you and uh i'll find out what the name of this thing was because it's i I just want to share this with everybody go ahead okay okay yeah this is um this is john saxon um when he became popular with the kids in the in the 80s um he became a mentor to his uh, 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 the, the the person that played his daughter in this movie. Uh, I'm talking about John Saxon playing Heather Lammerkamp's uh, father in Nightmare on Elm Street. Here we go. 
The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? We just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the John puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy? There's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah! Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. Who can forget that? Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's really iconic. Um, it's it's such a a fixture in pop culture nowadays. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he carried that through. I mean, he became, the, uh, the, as I said, Heather's uh, mentor and friend in this movie. And that carried through to uh, Dream Warriors. And then it carried through even to Wes Craven's new Nightmare. Because they were both in that as well. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I, you know, and that was Wes Craven's new Nightmare. That actually got some really incredible reviews when it came out. It, was a, it got a lot of critical acclaim. Um, Enjoy that. I'm I'm not I'm not unhappy with it at all. I I really yeah. enjoyed that one. Yeah, it was it was interesting. It was interesting. Anyway, well the tape. I'm sorry to to <laughs> go keep going to this, but the tape we sold was a Metal Gear Solid Two Sons of Liberty um trailer tape in a plain white sleeve sold for ninety dollars. <laughs> wow, is that ridiculous or what? I mean, it is. It it's strange. And we we sold three copies to the same person of uh, sealed uh, Matrix Reloaded. I mean, and they're buff. So and we we were just selling everything: Scorpion King, all kinds of dumb movies. Um, it, but people were buying them: Jurassic Park three, all kinds of crazy stuff. Susan, we get it. Stop. Po- oh, Susan's posting the the actual movies we have for sale. Yes, we do have a Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Freddy's Revenge Two, and uh, Dream Warriors. Uh, but yeah, so and that's where we're going next, right? Don't we have? Uh, yes. The- Movie Hel- posters. I actually have. Unfortunately, it was so badly damaged that it's not even worth hanging up in the house. So I just oh. put it up in the garage. And it's so such a shame, but it was a it was a great poster. Yeah, and this you know and and uh and honestly, I would say Nightmare on Elm Street three probably has the one of the biggest distinctions of being one of the first movies that had a smash hit 
with uh, the soundtrack by, you know, a hair metal band. And, you know, was often emulated for, like, you know, they got Alice Cooper to do Man Behind the Mask and stuff like that. And there were all kinds of other lower-budget movies that rock stars were getting involved with, like Black Roses and Rock and Roll Nightmare and stuff like that, trying to sell soundtracks, you know? So... And as a, a horror noir documentary uh, uh, stated, it was also one of the, the the first movies that really had a really kick ass uh, black actor that survived. Yeah, yeah, the exactly. horror movie. Yes, exactly. So, uh, so here we go. My favorite of the inst- of the Friday the Thirteenth movies, or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm sorry. It's 1987. Do you know where? There's no waking up from this nightmare. A nightmare on Elm Street, part three, Dream Warriors. psyched you out <laughs> yeah well, I actually combined two trailers i combined the rare theatrical trailer and then that little short little one because i love the rhyme it yeah. just makes me smile when i hear it so. no that's great that's great so get your crucifix uh yeah so yeah so so you you hit a lot of great bases there with uh uh these trailers and um you know, again, John Saxon, again, very interesting fella. Um, and, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, he, I I had no idea that he had, um, you know, martial arts training and had a black belt in karate. I mean, that that's oh. incredible. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I know that um, he decided after doing that movie that he never wanted to do another kung fu movie. Yeah. Because there was so little dialogue, he didn't think he, you know, he, he, he really, you know, enjoyed the acting experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 
Um, yeah. But he is his ashes are buried right next to uh, Bruce Lee and Brandon Lee's ashes uh, 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 grave. So that's he very had nice. a yeah he had a very deep admiration for uh, Bruce Lee. I'll I'll have some audio in the next segment uh, related to that. Um, did you want to mention some of the uh, uh, his TV appearances? Because I have a little audio thing I want to play related to one of them. Like too is also I want I did want to say first off and foremost that he was a lifelong liberal Democrat so awesome. that makes me smile, but um, yeah uh, he has credits dating you know um, really far back but also you know in some of our favorite uh, pop culture stuff Wonder Woman uh, mm-hmm. sixteen as uh, a six million dollar man and that's Vegas. the one six million dollar yes. man is the one that t- traumatized me as a child. That does not surprise me, because that's a pretty freaky uh, clip there. Yeah, basically he gets his face punched off by Lee, uh, Lee Majors, of course, uh, Steve Austin. And uh, and it's, it's you know, and probably borrowing from Westworld, uh, you know, uh, the, there was a, and, and Kolchak. Uh, yes. You know, there was a robot face underneath, a robot face. And the interesting thing about this, and I'll let you get back to the the other uh, shows that he did in a second here, but um, the interesting thing is there was a toy based on that episode of The Six Million Dollar Man where John Saxon played the robot, and they created a 12-inch action figure of villain for the six million dollar man because they needed a villain. You know, they had a six million dollar man that so they made I think they made a Bigfoot eventually. Um, but they had another villain and they called him Mascatron. And well here, here's the trailer for that, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Is that the six million dollar man? No, it's Mascatron the robot. Here's Steve Austin! At last we meet. Look out, Steve! Mascatron will conquer you. Take that, Mascatron, and that. Ow! And that! He will beat him every time. No, he won't. Maskatron will be back in another disguise. Maskatron, new from Kenner. Six million dollar man sold separately. So the, the John Saxon's character, well, the robot in, in this episode, was not called Maskatron. They totally made up the name for the toy. He came with three different masks to cover his robot face. One of Steve, uh, Steve Austin, one of Oscar Goldman, and one of a very generic kind of looking face that kind of looked a little like John Saxon, but just different enough that he couldn't say, hey, you're using my likeness, you know? So oh. so they basically yeah. cheated him, you know, out of, out of any kind of toy royalties that he could have gotten for his likeness um, by coming up with this generic version of this enemy from the episode of the show so you know kenner you're sleazy um (laughs) and um a lot didn't they um there are a lot of stories like this where there are uh you know companies are, are, are they can do a character but they can't do a likeness Right. I think uh, Star Wars is one of uh, the Star Wars and Star Trek are one of those rare exceptions that they like get the actors to sign off on their likeness too. So, um, and I think everybody's like fine with that. So, but there are other, you know, but there's plenty of other things where they just do. I mean, Mego does that all the time. They're like, "Hey, it's Al Bundy, but we just have this generic head sculpt." 
and the clothes are kind of the same. But uh, but anyway, uh, it, it, if you want, go ahead. You can mention some extra uh, uh, TV shows, and then I'll talk. When we come back, I'll talk about his TV movies. Yeah, um, he you know uh, Vegas, Fantasy Island, Night Gallery, uh, Another World, Falcon Crest. I think even Murder She Wrote. And a, wow, you know he just TV. He was a TV face. So one mm-hmm. of those one when you needed a character actor, and a lot of times. In his earlier career, he was on a lot of the westerns and stuff, and he would show up on several different episodes as different characters. Oh yeah, which that is was always funny. Par for the course, like, like we talked about Dean Stockwell the other day, who was on yes like four episodes of Wagon Train, one unfortunately as a Mexican boy. Um, yeah, well. so that was unfortunate. Um, Another thing is he um he as actually one of one of the things is he's known for it's it's kind of a goofy thing he's known for starring in uh, horror films that have feature the word blood so he was <laughs> in at least five of them he was in uh, uh uh four of them I'm sorry Blood Beast from Outer Space Queen of Blood Blood Beach and Blood Salvage oh there, so you, there go. you go there you go. <laughs> So, uh, but anyway, all right, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to come back and talk more. I have some uh, fun uh, trivia for everybody regarding some of the television stuff that he did um, working with Gene Roddenberry. Uh, and I think you guys will find this this very fascinating. There's the evolution of something that just never came to fruition, and John Saxon was involved twice, not once, but twice. And the evolution of a of a, a franchise that Gene Roddenberry was trying to develop, when some odd things carried over from it too, um, you know, some some strange things. But can't wait to talk about it. Um, but here we go. Uh, everybody, get your stellar converters out. We'll be right back. More. It came from Cleveland. I possess a stellar converter, the most powerful weapon in the universe. You cannot resist me. And now, on with the show. You some sort of weirdo? It's going to be a good night. Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last. The real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish Something evil. Excuse me, ladies. You're Martin Sheen. I am. Who's, who's Martin Sheen? A guy who's going to help save your family hundreds of dollars on prescriptions with single care. Gotta go. Silver Fox. Mom, what? Recommended for impressionable children. Silver Fox. <laughs> there you go, Joe. There is your surprise uh, drop from Martin Sheen. <laughs> Hope you Thank enjoy you very it. Much. You're very welcome. <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyway, welcome back to the show. Uh, hello there, Miles. Hey. And um, I think you might get a kick out of some of this interesting information. Uh, about uh, John Saxon on TV in the 70s, working with Gene Roddenberry, creator of, of course, legendary Star Trek. Um, and uh, welcome back, Michelle, too. Uh, thank you thank for you, thank you. the 
John Saxon movie uh, history there. Um, but yeah, so this is where we're going to start. Um, this does not involve John Saxon yet. But there was a television movie uh, created in 1973 called Genesis 2. And it was created and produced by Gene Roddenberry. Basically, it was the story of a guy who, much like Buck Rogers, uh, you know, the, the TV series, it was about a guy who was thought out from suspended animation. And uh, the main character, Dylan Hunt, uh, was working on something called Project Ganymede, uh, a, a suspended animation system for astronauts for long-duration space flights. And uh, something, of course, goes wrong, and uh, he wakes up in a post-apocalyptic future. Um, and uh, th this film also stars the uh, stunning uh, Mariette Hartley, uh, who many of you might remember from uh, The Incredible Hulk. Um, and she, she did a ton of, ton of different stuff. Uh, she's still with us. She's, she's like 80 or 81. Um, and, uh, the, uh, it, it, Ted Cassidy, of course, one of our favorites, uh, who played Lurch on the Addams Family and, uh, uh, Canimate in, uh, Twilight Zone. Uh, he kind of, uh, uh showed up, uh, well, not necessarily in this version, but he, sh he showed up in a new iteration of this that happened uh later but th this this show was this movie i should say was kind of a stinker it was a good concept but it was like it it, it was kind of like you know the the costuming was like the low end costumes left over from star trek for they felt you know ended up on an alien world and they're like ah we got these leftover robes and necklaces okay you know the kind of stuff like that uh, although I will say Marriott Hartley was not wearing a whole heck of a lot in the scenes I've seen. Uh, Majel Barrett was in this as well, of course, who was, uh, Gene Roddenberry's, uh, spouse, um, who played Lox, uh, uh, Loxana Troy. And of course she did the voice of the computer and she played Nurse Chapel. So she had a big history with Star Trek as well. Um, and, uh, but the role, the, the lead role was Alex Cord, um, in this, and uh, he's he's actually still alive too, but the the production company was like, you know what, it's kind of too slow. I mean, I think the biggest special effect was a golf cart in this. <laughs> you know, um, well, I mean, there was some some you know some high-tech stuff here and there but you know once he woke up in the future it was like pretty low rent stuff so so the production companies went went to him and said look we like your idea but we want more action we want it to look a little more sci-fi uh and we want you to change the lead we don't want you to you know you can keep some of the others like ted cassidy carry over ted cassidy uh but get rid of alex cord we suggest john saxon so they got john saxon for this role and the movie is available. Uh, the, well, but then the the movie is no longer called Genesis Two. All the ideas are reworked into a film that came out uh, a year or two later called Planet Earth. And um, yeah, so let me see. Uh, where is it? Um, oh gosh, they mentioned the Quester tapes in here too. I still have to see the Quester tapes. 
Um, did, did you see that, Joe? Didn't you mention that you saw the Quester tapes? No, I never okay. did. Okay. Yeah. So the um, but anyway, so so essentially, um, this uh, yeah, Planet Earth came out um, in uh, yeah, came out the year the next year with many of the same plots, and of course, John Saxon was in the role as Dylan Hunt, and I found a little bit of audio for this, um, John Saxon kind of doing. I, and they, they're getting real Star Trekky. They're trying to get a, even more Star Trekky as they go, Miles, because they're like, "You're Gene Roddenberry. Can you give us something a little more like Star Trek?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. Cool. And uh, what's the the really interesting thing about this is the costumes. The costumes are much better. The action is much better. And um, so I have. Uh, let me see. Uh, here's here's a scene. About a minute and a half uh, of, uh, it, 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 of course, John Saxon displaced, you know, from the 20th century in in the far flung future. Um, they have Ted Cassidy in a role that is very reminiscent of Mister Spock, um, who plays uh, Isaiah, I think is his name, and uh, and there's this scene where he's doing kind of a captain's log thing or reporting to not. The, um, not Starfleet, but Pax, you know, like the Greek word for peace, right? Um, and, uh, th there's an underground tunnel system that Pax is in charge of protecting, and then there's all kinds of mutants running around, you know, Mad Max style, uh, terrorizing everybody else trying to get to the tunnels. And, um, and this is, again, uh, him doing his little kind of captain's log, and then some of the action of some of the mutants chasing him around in a in a jeep with a big wooden box mounted on it. It was it was pretty bad. Dylan Hunt, log report to the PAX Council. Per instructions, we were escorting Peter Kimbridge on a survey which has confirmed that Central California is now an inland sea. Population along the shores, a handsome racial mixture, illiterate but intelligent. Although the land remains fertile, famine is common. Their primary need from us is education and agricultural techniques. With those facts determined, we headed homeward when the ambush occurred. They were Kriegs, that mutated form of human capable of understanding only machinery and warfare. It was clear that they recognized who we were and wanted us alive, possibly because they've heard that underground sub-shuttle tubes honeycombed the Earth and that only we of Pax know the secret. Slowing our progress was the age of Peter Kimbridge, his rapid exhaustion. Each of us in turn tried to divert the Krieg vehicle, while the others moved Kimbridge nearer and nearer a sub-shuttle tube entrance, where we hoped to escape. Team, switch to XY tranquilizers. Our standard hypos aren't stopping them. Message received. We're reloading. Isaiah, divert them. Things from your century? Yeah, we call them automobiles. It's fantastic that it's still running. It's a late 1970s chassis with a converted wood gas fuel system. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
So now if you look, Michelle has posted some pictures of the costume designs from Planet Earth. They bear a very similar look to some of the costume, the, the Starfleet uniform designs in Star Trek The Next Generation. Of Albeit the colors are way different. They're like yellow and green. Um, but that design is just very, very similar. To, so, so I would be curious to see if, if the costume designer on this was one of the same people who worked on uh, the uniforms for uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Or if Roddenberry himself was like, you know, I really like those costumes in Planet Earth. Why don't we do something like that for Star Trek The Next Generation? So, um, I, I can can you see that, Miles, in the design of those costumes? Um, I think so. Oh, we're talking about, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yellow pants, yes. Yeah, yeah. Joe, you see that? You, you know, how they're, uh, the, the uniforms are constructed in the two-tone like that? Oh, definitely, especially the next generation kind of thing. Yeah. 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 The jumpsuit look. Yes. 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 And they even have, you know, uh, they, they, the weapons are like in the play, their, their weapons are like tucked in, in the place of a Starfleet badge too, you know? Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I found that uh, very interesting when I watch this. Now the story of, of planet earth doesn't end there. Because, and the story of Gene Roddenberry working with John Saxon doesn't end there. There is a, another, yet another iteration of this came out a few years later. Um, and uh, leaning more into Star Trek territory, Strange New World. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was made for TV. Uh, it, it, it aired on... Uh, July thirteenth, nineteen seventy five. So it came out like like the same year as this other one. Um, now uh, 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 the organization PAX still exists, but the character's name has now changed. Um, where uh, uh, let me see. Um, What's his name? Uh, John Saxon is Captain-y, uh, Cap I'm sorry, Captain Anthony Vico, PAX team leader. And, you know, again, the suspended animation thing comes into play. Here's the opening uh, of uh, Strange New World. Uh, you know, uh, gee, where, why does it Strange New World sound so familiar? <laughs> and, um, uh, and Miles, uh, uh, listen to some of the sound effects that they have put in this. <laughs> Some of them might sound familiar. And what's hilarious is the sound effects are in here, but nothing's happening except we're looking at people in suspended animation, which I find hilarious. This is the PAX Space Laboratory. We were working on an experiment oh. in suspended animation. God. <laughs> That's me. Captain Anthony Vico. I went from mm. test pilot to astronaut, and now I'm leader of the PAX team. Alison Crowley, navigator and communications expert. PAX doctor, William Scott. In our deep sleep, we thought all was well. While mission control monitored our flight path, they discovered a mass of giant asteroids hurtling through space directly toward us. 
they were able to recompute our orbit away from the speeding asteroids. They could save us, but not themselves. Meteors rained down on Earth for days. It was the worst disaster in the history of the world. They saved us by extending our suspended animation. But they didn't did not save themselves. And that's how the story goes. So yeah, did did uh, I I don't know. Some of those sound effects sounded a little familiar. Mm. <laughs> oh wow. Yes, uh, Joe just posted something in chat. You're evil man, Joe. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh wow, look at that. Sharky, uh Blood Beach. So Yes. Um Oh, oh hi, Tennessee. You see those st- the stellar land vehicle they had? Oh my god! Oh wow, that's uh, that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. So so this is you know it, within two years they cranked out three versions of the same movie, two f- with John Saxon. John Saxon obviously was very committed, and I commend him for that. But you know, I I from what I have seen, the second version of it. Uh, looked a little better, and this one didn't have Ted Cassidy in it too. So, um, I, I I have a theory. What's that? They wanted John Saxon in both of them, both of them, just so he could take his shirt off. Oh, there you go, there you go. But there's a lot of shirtless footage, or at least toga footage, with half of his pecs showing out. That so, yeah, that go. one, that <laughs> the one, the toga footage is uh, from that's from the third one. That's from uh, yes, uh, Strange New World. Um, but yeah, I mean, seriously, Strange New World, a line right out of the Star Trek intro. Um, you know, but oh oh my God, all those sound effects, they're just like, just throw all the Star Trek sound effects in. Do we want phasers and (laughs) transporters too? No, not the phasers and transporters. Um, you know, but do the little back, 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 back. (laughs) Classic sensors sound. Yeah. And the, they even had the doors opening and closing, but there were no doors opening and closing. They were just in suspended animation. So anyway, I I, I found that uh, quite amusing. Uh, wish wish you know those shows would have those movies would have turned into something, but they didn't. But uh, you know we might never have gotten the next generation. But man, how cool would have John Saxon been as a Starfleet captain, right? Oh yeah, at any so. age. That yeah, would have cool. been good, yeah. Yeah, so at any he had, age. He had a, yeah, he had a better body than William Shatner, so there you go. And he could do his own stunts, probably. <laughs> yeah, um, and he, and he so. didn't pause too long between uh, words, either. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um. So, uh, yeah, so anyway, all right, now I, I got to the way, By yeah. the way, uh, it was Richard Keel who was the cannon. Richard Keel was who what, was what? The Canimit. Oh, Richard Keel was Canimit? I'm sorry. I screwed that up. Yes, yeah. yes. I yes, apologize. Yes. Thank you. To I, Richard I, Keel. <laughs> yeah. I apologize to the late, great Richard Keel. Um, so, um, yes. Thank you, Joe. And, um, uh, but, yeah, so Ted Cassidy was, you know, it's like him, him or Ted Cassidy were getting those jobs, right? Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ted Cassidy did a Star Trek. He did. Uh, yes. The original right. Star Trek. He was yeah. one of the robots, you know, 
Yeah. Or sentient. That one. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all right, uh, uh, we, we gotta, I gotta kind of get into lightning speed here, uh, cause I don't want to step on anybody else's toes. So we're going to get to, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, this is a great movie with a great cast. Roger Corman, um, uh, did a pretty good job with a low budget. Um, and apparently John Saxon was only on set for three days. I have some uh, interview audio of, of him that, uh, hopefully we'll get to next. Uh, but listen to this trailer for Battle Beyond the Stars. Great movie. I highly recommend it. And my cousin, uh, John Boy Walton, is in this, of course, uh, Michael Thomas. Uh, I am actually related to him by marriage. <laughs> Ruthless invaders, a defenseless planet. Richard Thomas. Battle Beyond the Stars. A lone youth escapes on a last-ditch mission that begins at the edge of the universe. of a boy who finds more than he expected. <laughs> and all he can handle. Does your species have kissing? Oh, yes. We have that. Try one. That's a hot dog. It comes from Earth. Do you like it? There's no dog in this. Mm -mm. Soybean meal? Niacin, dextrose, and sodium nitrate flavoring. That's what we call meat back home. Battle Beyond the Stars. Starring Richard Thomas. George Papard. Robert Vaughn. John Saxon. <laughs> A battle beyond time, beyond space. Nice and fire! That ends in a desperate gamble. They'll be able to board us. It won't make any difference. Get that hatch open! No! Battle beyond the stars. Yeah, Battle Beyond the Stars featuring the giant nutsack spaceship. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's just obscene on the movie poster. You know, I mean, yeah. that's wrong. Uh, I remember seeing that as a kid and being like, wow, that shouldn't look like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a really fun movie. Again, uh, I'm sorry, I said Michael Thomas, I meant Richard Thomas. Uh, look, I don't even know my relatives' names. Um, yeah, I've, I never met him or anything like that. But it had Sybil Danning. Of course, Sybil Danning was uh, a huge staple for 80s movies, uh, B-movies, and uh, um, usually appearing nude, <laughs> or at least topless in a lot of her films. 
and uh, Robert Vaughn. Who could forget Robert Vaughn or George Papard from the A Team? And what did oh, what, yeah. what did George Papard do? What what show was he on in the sixties? Was he on? Um, uh, oh, he was in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, that's right. I forgot about that. Was he an I Spy or something like that? Or I can't remember what uh, what he was in on TV. But yeah, he was in the A Team, so that's all that counts. Um, but uh, but yeah, this was a great movie. I I, I highly recommend it. Uh, Miles, have you seen this one? Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. Yes, yes, yeah, I have. So, so it's a fun one. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed uh, it. Yeah. Um. And uh, let me see how long He's ben- this is. he was in Banachek. Is that what you're thinking of? Uh, no. I I, I think I'm just mixing uh, earlier him up than with, that. I think okay. I'm I'm mixing him up with. I forget who was in I Spy. Um. But uh. Uh. But it doesn't really matter. Um. And uh. Let me see. I have a clip here. It's too long. It'll cut into miles time. Um. Yeah. So unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get to any of the interview footage. Um, but anyway, uh, maybe if we have time when we get to the Twilight Zone, although there's a lot of audio for that, too. Um, uh, but anywho, let's just go ahead and go to the break right now. And, uh, Michelle, I, I, maybe we should go ahead and do your, uh, your birthday trailers right now. So why don't you set that up for us and I'll save the, uh, save Adam segment for the, the last hour. Yeah, that, that, that'll be pretty cool. Let me just pull up my notes here. Um, we have Dom DeLuise, August 1st, 1933, born in Brooklyn, New York City. Um, we are going to tra- do the trailer of Secret of Nim because he plays the raven in that. It's a fun role, and it's got some spooky fantasy vibes to it. We have Wesley Snipes, July 31st, 1962, in Orlando, Florida. And we have Blade Two for him. And then we have uh, Don Sinclair Davis, uh, August 4th, 1942, in Aurora, Missouri. Um, people will know him from like Twin Peaks and a bunch of other uh, uh, bit roles, but we have him in Needful Things with Max von Zedow. Very cool. All right, everybody get your refreshments, and we'll be right back. I think I'll have me a little drinky winky. Aurora and Don Bluth Productions present a classic adventure in motion picture entertainment. I must tell you about Nim. Look there. It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. And heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on! It's an odyssey to another world. A world of fantasy and enchantment. To what you see and hear, you must swear absolute secrecy. It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. Do you like me? Of course I like you. It's a story of friendship. I mean, you don't think I'm clumsy or anything. What? I just need a few pointers to polish my style. I told you you'd love flying. I don't know how I let you talk me into this. It's a classic story of courage. Why have you come? And a world of danger. 
If I had actually been near a cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. I'm allergic to hay. Excuse me, pardon me. Where courage is rewarded. Oh, thank you. A motion picture for everyone to share. Oh, the poor turkey fell down. I'm, I'm not a turkey. Big no, buzzer, Discover the secret of Nim and rediscover the child in us all. Beyond the one we know, where the powers of darkness fear nothing but one man. Stop! Blade. We represent the ruling body of the Vampire Nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You sure about this? They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Now. Those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. They're no longer top of the food chain. Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader. Let me get this right. You want me to hunt them for you? Ooh, so exciting. Five, four, three, two, one. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Castle Rock Entertainment and Stephen King invite you to visit Castle Rock, Maine, a quiet little town whose population has just increased by one. Do you believe in the devil, Father? I guess I have to. You can't have one without the other. What's he look like? What the hell does he look like? May I take this opportunity to welcome you to Castle Rock on the good Lord's behalf? Why not? So where are you from? Ohio. I've been in this business a long time, and I've learned the pleasure of offering my customers what they really need. He came here to destroy us. Oh, you wussy. There have been two murders and an attempted suicide in this quiet little town, and Mr. Leland Gorn is at the bottom of it. You're a disgusting. I like that in a person. Everybody that's got it coming is gonna get it now. The young carpenter from Nazareth? I knew him well. Promising young man. But he died badly. A famine here, a flood there, a little bloodlust, a broken heart. You can't win. I've got God on my side.
these things happen. My apologies to everyone. The server got hung up. And I had to go reset it. So, uh, we should be back on the air, but everything is still being recorded in the podcast. Never fear. There's always a record. And everything lives forever on the internet, right? Uh, yeah, anyway. Just, just remember, yeah. as Max Von Zedow just said, these things happen. These things do happen. <laughs> so, And, uh, all right, uh, but my wife is still alive. Uh, so... <laughs> And uh, and she's the one who told me about the problem because I wouldn't even known had had she not come in here. So anyway, welcome back uh, to the program. And I kind of got it backwards. Uh, Miles will be talking Hiroshima next hour. Uh, but welcome back to you, Miles. Hello, sir. Yes, yes. hello. And uh, Joe, welcome back to you uh, as well. We're going to be talking about a couple uh, birthday actors uh, from you as well. So uh, very excited. Yes, and thank you again, Michelle, for uh, doing the heavy lifting on the John Saxon stuff. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, what a, what a, I mean, it's, he was one of those rare people that could actually do the lead or be a character actor, you know? And he did both, and he did it beautifully, and I, I yeah. that's what I love about him. And, you know, it's, it's a shame I can never remember his name. <laughs> and it's a shame. <laughs> but I know not, that voice. <laughs> and it's a shame there's not, there's not more interviews with him, because he was a fascinating man to, to listen to, and... Again, the some of the interviews I got were just, you know, I mean, the interviewers seem more impressed with themselves than they did with him, which is really irritating. Um, and, history, too. Yeah. So, you know, uh, being born of uh, uh, Italian immigrants and a first-generation father and all that cool stuff. That's, yeah. that's pretty, And he could speak fluent Italian. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And uh, now, Joe, for for your segment, um, I have uh, something that we played on another show. Um, uh, the if if you would like me to set it up for for Martin Sheen, uh, when we did our Emilio Estevez show, there was a little history about um, why Emilio Estevez chose his name and why Martin Sheen chose chose his. Uh, do you want you want me to play that real quick? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so here's a little bit of family history from uh, Emilio and Martin. Uh, I was influenced by a lot of managers and agents who wanted to come into my life and, and, and uh, represent me. And they said, well, you know, it'd be a lot easier, kiddo, if you, uh, if you went with Sheen. It's a, it's a brand name. Uh, it'll be a lot easier for you. Plus, you don't look Hispanic. Same issues as 1979, 1980. And so my first series of headshots, uh, I got printed up with the name Emilio Sheen and at the very bottom. <laughs> And, and I looked at it, and I went, that is so stupid. <laughs> it looks so stupid. So anyway, I thought it had a little bit more Martin Sheen in it, but it didn't. But the, the history is there, you know, uh, you know uh, Martin Sheen, you know, he, he felt that, well, his agent said, you know, you're, you're yes. more marketable uh, because, you know, you don't look Latino, you know? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, well, and that was the that was the day. But uh, you know, his name was uh, Ramon Antonio Gerardo Estevez. Uh, so I'm sure I said that horribly. Uh, but oh, yeah. uh, I don't think anybody would have said it better. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so but you know, they changed it to Martin Sheen, and uh, and and you know, he's had uh, quite the career, um, and of course. Uh, He's brother to the more famous uh, Joe Estevez, 
I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but Joe Estefez is a great guy. He is a really affable human being, and he knows he does some cheesy movies. But Martin's done some, you know, he's done some some stinkers too, you know. So. Oh yeah. But he's also done some pretty eclectic work as well. So where where do you want to go uh, with this, Joe? Well, uh, let's start with uh, let's see. We have. Let me get my files up here. Martin Sheen, uh, I think, let's see, I have, let's set up clip, clip one, because just to ease, this is like our segue from horror to other stuff. Uh, he did one notable uh, comic strip hero, or villain, uh, Spawn. Yes. Right? And, and um, I, I believe that... Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in the clip I have, this would be clip one. Uh, Michael J. Waite, that's Spawn, who plays Spawn, mm -hmm. uh, confronts Jason Wynn, who is Martin Sheen. The Martin Jason Wynn being the uh, antagonist, who e by the evil way, bastard. Yes, evil. who sent him on a mission and double-crossed him and had him assassinated, and his right. body set on fire, which blew up the chemical plant <laughs> and sent spawn to hell so uh this is the clip excuse me ladies he you're crashed. martin sheen i am who's, who's martin sheen a guy who's going to help save your family hundreds of dollars on prescriptions with single care gotta go silver fox mom what so evil no i'm kidding <laughs> no that's not the clip that's the wrong clip wrong clip that's a different scene in spawn that's different when, scene from when spawn. jason Wynn is terrorizing that's what Pharmacy. That was after Jason Wynn got burned, and he he offered him some some prescription uh, aloe, <laughs> <laughs> aloe vera, yeah. Uh, yeah, and a good discount. All right, here we go. Right. Uh, uh, Spawn confronts Jason Wynn. Left me to die in that biochem plant. Remember? Shimmons! You sent me to hell, Jason! I'm here to return the favor! There you go. Here to return and the favor. And he did. Return the favor. Yeah. Yes. So that was uh, Martin Sheen's, uh, one of Martin Sheen's uh, uh, segues into horror. Spawn. Yeah. Uh, based on the comic book created by Todd McFarlane. There you go. There you go. I wouldn't know that, but I trust you're right. <laughs> That's why you have nerd friends like me. Yeah, yeah I it's... thought Yeah, it was a fun movie with John Leguizamo, played the evil clown in it. Um yes, yeah. Yes. And so it had a really good cast. Yes it did. Yes it did. And speaking of another good cast, um, Martin Sheen had an interesting experience in the Philippines oh filming <laughs> a, a little-known B-movie called Apocalypse Now Yeah, by yeah. a little-known director, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. And I, I mentioned to Michelle during production uh, prep that uh, 
I consider this a horror movie because anybody who's seen it, and I don't know if you have, um, the trip up the river to Kurt. I, I, I don't know if you do, does anyone. Everyone know what this is about? Yes. Oh okay. yeah. Okay. So so the trip up the river to Kurt's compound uh, is quite a horror trip, <laughs> and many nasty things happen, including getting eaten by a tiger. Oh. So. Yes. <laughs> it's got the suspense. So, uh, yeah, it's got the gore. Yes, it has everything. Yeah. It has everything. And uh, and it has Martin Sheen. Uh, now, in the scene we're going to, in clip two, the scene is uh, from a cop apocalypse now. Uh, it's uh, a psychological thriller, really. Uh, uh, okay. It's originally, there was a novella in 1899 called Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Uh, it uh, about the war in the Congo. It was adapted yeah. for the Vietnam War in this. And in this, uh, Colonel Kurtz, who is played by Mar- what a what a cast, Marlon Brando. Uh, mm-hmm. He's gone insane, and he's gone renegade, and he's uh, gone with a bunch of mercenaries into Cambodia, and is waging his own private war that the United States doesn't really like. So they hire they don't hire they order one of their special forces assassins who is captain benjamin or benjamin willard who's martin sheen and uh he's been sent to vietnam to uh to kill well how should we put it to um take out um take out kurtz with extreme prejudice (laughs) yeah and so he's waiting in his hotel room this clip for his orders. Shit. I'm still only in Saigon. Every time I think I'm gonna wake up back in the jungle. When I was home after my first tour, it was worse. said a word to my wife until I said yes to a divorce. When I was here, I wanted to be there. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back into the jungle. I'm here a week now. Waiting for a mission. Getting softer. stay in this room I get weaker and every minute Charlie squats in the bush he gets stronger each time I looked around the walls moved in a little tighter so uh, here's a little bit of trivia for you Joe about this I don't know if you know this or not but you know, Martin Sheen had a heart attack during the filming of this because I was, I think, yes, I was going to mention that. Yes, it was drug related, and his brother Joe stood in for him on voiceovers. Joe Estevez did voiceovers in the film, but he's uncredited. Right. 
Right. Uncredited. But uh, yeah, he had he had uh, a heart attack uh, in the Philippines there. Uh, I know it was drug related. I, at the time, they were saying it was just the stress and the heat of the Philippines. But uh, yeah, there were some some drug problems. Well, there. If, if anybody's ever seen Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about this, it is uh, mm-hmm. very eye opening. Yes. So yes, it is. So very disturbing. Uh, one of the one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite movies of Francis Ford Coppola. So uh, now, just to show Martin Sheen's range, um, uh, we have uh, clip number three, and I'll set that up. Uh, what we have here is that uh, this is from The West Wing. Everyone's familiar. I don't know if everybody was a fan of The West Wing. Uh, President Bartlett, Love played by it. Martin. Played by Martin Sheen. And the scene we're going to play in clip three is going to be at a reception. Now, it's the midterm elections. Okay. And the Democrats, Bartlett's uh, party has done fantastic in the midterms, which I hope we do, too. And he is giving, trying to give a, a little victory speech to his, his uh, immediate people. And he's distracted in this because there is... Um, someone, a character named Dr. Jenna Jacobs, who's played by Claire Yartlett, uh, seated in the room while everybody else is standing in respect for the president being there, giving him speech. Uh, and several times during this, you'll hear that he gets distracted. Uh, the reason he's distracted is this person is a uh, Bible banger uh, who is an uh, is a homophobe and uh by the way it it, it it was a thinly veiled reference by aaron sorkin to dr laura schlesinger i guess you i figured so, yeah yes so uh bartlett uh takes offense to her presence and uh dresses her down a bit clip three all right, and if anybody's interested, we're selling the entire West Wing box set on DVD over on our eBay store. <laughs> yes, true story, <laughs> and, and it's worth it's worth the money. Here you believe go. me. Forgive me, Doctor Jacobs. Are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD. Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show, people call in for advice, and you go by the name Doctor Jacobs on your show, and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21-7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35-2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. 
touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight-ass club, in this building when the president stands, nobody sits. Damn. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Drop the mic, walk out. Yeah. Yeah. I what think, I did, uh, what I cut out of that scene was as he walks by uh, one of his aides, he says, "He says that's how I beat them." <laughs> yeah, in the midterm. Well, well I think yeah. his uh, his sons have a, a message for him for that. Golf clap. Golf clap. Give him a little golf clap. <laughs> yes. Give him a standing ovation for that. Sure. Wow. Yes, sure. Yes. Was that like a mic drop moment? That's oh, amazing. John saying couldn't have done it any better. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And, 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 you know, well, Aaron Sorkin was such a great writer. That mm-hmm. was such a great written show. Uh, yeah. Couldn't, couldn't be better. Anyway, I guess we could go on to Peter O'Toole. Yeah, you've got some great stuff here from him as well. Yes. And uh, Okay, so uh, Peter O'Toole. What could I say about Peter O'Toole? A classic actor, not one in a generation, one of all time. Okay, I, I mean, you can't say enough about him. Uh, but let's run down some of the stuff he did, just just to remind people the range and his. He was an actor's actor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Pygmalion, nineteen eighty-three. My favorite year, nineteen eighty-two. Man of La Mancha, 1972. Goodbye, my, Mr. Chips. My favorite musical is Man of La Mancha, by the way. Is it? Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, 1969. Uh, Lion in Winter. Oh, if you haven't seen that, you, <laughs> you, you're missing a, a classic. And uh, with Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lawrence of Arabia, 1962. Probably, well... One of his best, but for science fiction fans, now he he wasn't a, a snob. <laughs> okay, uh, he played Doctor Timothy Flight in Phantoms. Uh, he was the Emperor of Lilliput in Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a Ray Bradbury theater uh, episode called The Banshee. He played John Hampton, and he was yeah. in a Super Supergirl. Ah, uh, thank you, Michelle. <laughs> He was in a Supergirl. He played Zaltar, 1984. I, I forgot about that. And I was mistaken. Yes, he, I thought he passed away recently. He passed away in 2013. My apologies for yeah, uh, messing that up. But he did do a Lassie, a little bit of Bob Weatherwax uh, trivia here. It was the only Lassie that Bob didn't do, the last Lassie movie, and he was in it. And uh, Bob always regrets that um, that was one movie he didn't do. And he always wanted to work with Peter O'Toole. Uh, never got to, but Peter O'Toole was in that that last Lassie. Um, in the first clip, just to show some of his comedic range, there are th- 
clip it's a clip of three separate little clips clipettes of his his movies uh so why don't you go ahead and play those that clip and just just to see how he could be f- all right I'm not an actor, I'm a movie star! My dear young lady, unlike you, I have not spent my life cruising from discotheque to discotheque with my arse hanging out of a French cut bathing suit. Well, you're missing all the fun, aren't you? I suspect you're right. (laughs) This is for ladies only. And so is this, ma'am, but every now and again I have to run a little water through it. (laughs) (laughs) That last scene, he was in the ladies' room taking a whiz. And that oh, woman, wow. that woman uh, objected to his presence, and that's the line he gave her. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. And in the second clip, again, a little. It's a short one; it's only fourteen seconds, but it's a, it's a great clip. Again, showing some of his comedic uh, uh, chaps. As the official representative of our Britannic Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I order you to withdraw at once, or I shall be forced to shoot you between the eyes with a rather large bullet. <laughs> <laughs> a rather a large bullet. Bullet. <laughs> and the third clip, you know, uh, uh, guys, we, we talk a lot about the, the folly of these people who call themselves, uh, mm-hmm. how do they put it, um, what's the, the, the acting... Uh, you know, method acting. Method yeah. act. Mm-hmm. You know, what's my motivation? I think Catherine Hepburn had a. I think it was Catherine Hepburn's. Some actor said that in her presence, and she says, "ER check." And uh, <laughs> but this guy was an actor's actor, and he wasn't a method actor. One of the greatest in the history of man, and he wasn't a method actor. Yeah. And here we have uh, Lehrer is interviewing him about uh, his acting skills and and Lair kind of is it Lair or Charlie Rose? Uh, or it's Charlie Rose, I'm sorry. Charlie, yeah, it was Yeah, cuz I heard it and I was like, wow, Charlie Rose kind of stepped in it with this question with him. Uh he really did. Charlie Rose uh yeah, he was like, "Oops." <laughs> I mean, he just kind of was very reductive and uh and and uh O'Toole took uh, uh he he took uh um, he took a little offense to, to that. Yeah, it took exception. To yeah, that. he did a little President Bartlett on him, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he kind of did. This is so. This is his President Bartlett moment with Charlie Rose. Did you have to prepare for this, other than just learn your lines? Well, are you other than just learn your lines. Now, just think of what you said. <laughs> Go ahead. Just think of what you said. Other than learning your lines, that's not easy. How many uh, things do you know by heart? Any poems, maybe a national anthem, a prayer or two? Yes? Not many. Have you sat down and studied a poem when you were at school or whatever? Of course. And did you learn it? Yes. And did it take a long time? Yes. Right. So learning your lines is not easy, so it's don't dismiss it. the old... Not only is it easy, it isn't not just a question of learning your lines. What it is, the old-fashioned word for it was study. Unobserved, uninhibited, private study for months, if necessary. So every nuance, every phrase is considered and thought out well in advance. Unobserved, uninhibited, private study is the backbone of any fine actor. There you go. Charlie Rose, eat it. <laughs> 
Yes. (laughs) Yes, he sort of took him apart piece by piece and left the pieces on the floor. (laughs) So so that's Peter O'Toole. Not to be, uh, as Francie said, do not fuck with Peter O'Toole. <laughs> yeah, and he took umbrage. So, she says that much, yeah, better, better uh, phrase. Yes. So yes, he he took umbrage at uh, other than learn your lines. He balked. <laughs> he balked at Charlie Rose, and yeah, Charlie Rose yes. is disgraced now too. By the way, absolutely, he was, a, he was a perv. So absolutely. But anyway, so well, you know, yeah. Go anyway, ahead. those are are. There are two great actors that I picked out of uh, Michelle's long list of birthdays, and uh, I think Martin Sheen and Peter O'Toole, uh, along with Anthony Hopkins. There was a one funny thing, real quick. When Peter O'Toole actually called on Anthony Hopkins to play in Lion in Winter, have you have you seen that? No. Okay, it's worth if you can find it. It's it's much worth watching. But anyway, he wanted him to play Richard, his uh, the king's son, Henry II's son. And he called up uh, Anthony Hopkins. And Anthony Hopkins was just taken, young man, taken aback. Yeah. <laughs> this is Peter O'Toole calling and wants me in a film? And, and he said, well, I, of course, of course, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. And uh, he said, who else is in it? And, uh, you know, Peter O'Toole says, oh, well, no one. Uh, Catherine Hepburn <laughs> oh my gosh what am i getting into wow uh and and timothy dalton was in uh in that too oh okay. james bond yeah so uh yes it's and the story our... of it's a strange it's a strange story of uh how henry ii had his uh wife imprisoned but mm-hmm. allowed her to come back to the castle for christmas <laughs> wow, that's oh, dark. Lovely. That's dark. And how? And there? And well, yeah, but she had the better of him. I tell you. Well, we'll have if to you check watch it out. The, watch the movie. All right. Well, we got to get going to the break. Uh, Miles is going to talk to us about Hiroshima and Nagasaki when we return, and then we're going to get to our Twilight Zone review. And if we have any time, we'll play some leftovers from John Saxon. Uh, But in the interim, we shall be right back with the final hour of It Came From Cleveland right right after this. Golf clap? Golf clap. And now, on with the show. Laugh while you can, monkey boy. Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish unto you. Something evil. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will feast your eyes on probably the most exciting invention since atomic energy. Not recommended for impressionable children. Oh no, not at all. All right, Michelle, welcome back. Uh, Some good John Saxon info for everybody tonight. 
Uh, sorry, she's hovering. Uh, okay. Somewhere outside. Oh, oh, she's coming back now. All right. And, uh, Joe, thank you for the Martin Sheen and Peter O'Toole, uh, audio My pleasure. My pleasure. And, and uh, welcome back, Michelle. Thank and you. I just had to blow my nose, so I was no, out of the room. <laughs> not a problem at all. And uh, and last but not least, Miles. Uh, here we go. Uh, we have uh, a sad anniversary, but uh, you're going to give us some information. Uh, so it 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 is historically significant. Um, all right. I, uh, are you getting a double voice on me? Yeah, I am getting an echo. Yeah. Hold on a second. Okay. Okay. I was hearing it. Uh, so anyway. Ah, ah, August 6, 76 years ago, um, first atomic bomb ever used in war on Hiroshima. So there's a lot of controversy. Um, understandably, uh, nuclear weapons are extremely destructive, having lasting effects to health and nature and all that sort of thing. And um, the biggest uh, problem I, I think of is the... Um, Collateral damage to civilians, which, of course, you know, when you think about war crimes and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, what's wrong? What's that? Sorry, Michelle was gesturing or something, and okay, she, she <laughs> all good. Uh, so, I'm. Uh, it, it's it's an uncomfortable topic for me. I mean, I mean, when I was younger, I was very more you know, pro-military, thumping the chest, yay, raw America. And as I have grown older and uh, allegedly wiser, then, you know, I start to not think so, you know, such that. So, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinions on this matter. But, sure, um, you know, th- that being said, this is this is a, a, a controversial uh, topic. And I, I apologize uh, for, you know, if I, I cause people to feel uncomfortable. But, um Certain things in history, I think, need to be discussed and be brought back up so we don't forget. Uh, you know, uh, and you know, it's it's important. I, I think I think history is important. So true. Um, let's just I'm going to just do a quick uh, touch up on the technology involved, just to go technical. So we're not I'm not talking about uh, stuff. So technologically. The two bombs used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the little boy was dropped on Hiroshima and uh, Fat Man was dropped on Nagasaki. Uh, The little boy was a uh, uranium-235 weapon and the Fat Man was a plutonium-based weapon. The little boy had something called, I think, a rifle setup where there was a cylinder and a projectile and an explosive slammed the two together and caused the the fission to occur. Yeah. Um, Quick point of um, uh, uh, belief on on the bomb that exploded over Hiroshima, it is thought that only 1.7% of the bomb's fissionable material actually <laughs> was used. So, oh, wow. yeah, as powerful as it was, it, uh, it, it only 1.7%. That's pretty damn small. The plutonium weapon is implosion based. And from what I understand about how that works is a, it is surrounded by explosive and the explosive causes extr- extreme compression 
on the fissionable material, and then that causes the fissionable material to then react and explode in a uh, catastrophic way. Mm-hmm. So that's the two bombs. Um, now, now back to uh, how they were used. The uh, some context. So the war was going very badly for Japan. After Midway, um, they were strictly, you know, things just went on the defensive. America was was really gearing up uh, industrially speaking and churning out ships and planes like nobody's business. Yeah. And we started pushing back the Japanese all across the Pacific. And um, things really got to a head at Okinawa. The Battle of Okinawa, I may discuss that in the future, very bloody. Um, I mean, we're talking even the the, the indigenous populations were committing suicide. I mean, it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. So, um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is it has been argued that um, the U.S. government should have used one of its two bombs to demonstrate to the Japanese military, hey, this is what we have. This is what's coming. You should surrender. And um, the Japanese mindset, especially in the military, is very fanatical. I mean, when, you, when you're talking suicide in, in the Battle of Okinawa, kamikaze planes were diving in on, on ships, blowing many of them up, damaging hundreds of them. It's it, it, it was so the middle the to argue that the Japanese were on the verge of surrender, yeah, they were on the verge of collapse, but they were going to fight to the last. There were estimates that there was 2.3 million Japanese infantry on the homeland islands. You know that's 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 well trained infantry, and on top of that, 28 million or 23 million militia, which is the just drafted uh, civilians so i have the notes i gotta get to them there's you'll have to forgive me they're scattered all over my pages and i know how i kind of want to talk about things but i just need to find ah here we go so um the japanese estimates nopes i'm looking at the actual (laughs) destruction of the weapons (laughs) i apologize that's a different set of kill numbers um Anyway, from uh, I'll talk. There was talk about the casualties on the Japanese side. Upwards, one Japanese uh, gen, uh, uh, Navy commander estimated 20 million Japanese deaths by the attacks on um, the um, home islands. Mm-hmm. And from American uh, estimations, they expected... Uh, 1.7 to 4 million casualties of allied uh, soldiers with 400,000 to 500,000 dead and they anticipated 5 million to 10 million Japanese dead. So these are the kind of numbers that are you know, these are the planning stages you know, uh, being made to invade the Japanese homelands and these are the kind of numbers that are that are floating around. Um so a a plan was put in. Oh my God, I'm running out of time. <laughs> a plan was put in, um, uh, suggested by the scientists to like, hey, 
can you do the demonstration? This actually was proposed by the scientists. Um, and the American um, military just said, no. Um, for one, there's no guarantee that it would convince the Japanese military to surrender. Uh, and two, if something went wrong, well, there you go. It, it, that's one less bomb. And, you know, we only have a limited number. From what I've read and looked up, um, after uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the American forces had another bomb that would have been ready to go in mid-August, three more bombs ready to go in September, three more bombs in October, and one more bomb in, de in December. Wow. So, yeah, the de the dev I mean, the devastation would would have been uh, just horrible, uh, just un unimaginable. Quick, th so I I want to keep this um, uh, relevant. I just gave the ex um, expected casualties of what was expected for a invasion. And so I, I want to bring up the numbers of what happened in uh, Hiroshima. So 70 to 80,000 died um, and 70,000 injured um, on, a, on a side note. And it's not a good one. <laughs> None of it's good. No. Put that disclaimer out there. 90% of the doctors in Hiroshima were killed. And nurses. Oh, God. Were killed. And um, that happened because the Enola Gay, the bombardier, uh, the target was the AEOE bridge. And if Adam's listening, please forgive my butchering of the uh, pronunciation of <laughs> Japanese names. Um, but because of a crosswind, it missed its target. And ground zero is pretty much uh, determined to be the Shima Hospital. Yeah, I just war is hell. <laughs> I, I I don't mean to make light of it. I'm very mm -hmm. serious. Um, you know, uh, uh, quick apology on my part. My uh, for times of discomfort, uh, my sense of humor is my self defense mechanism. So when I you hear me chuckle or laugh, it's not it's not because I'm trying to make light of things. It's just no, my, I, I don't think anybody instance. would assume that. I anyway. So, um, the, the, the plan was to move forward with the bombing. Um, and there were a, something called the Potsdam uh, dec uh, Declaration that was issued on July 26th to the Japanese government. And basically, it was a demand for unconditional surrender or face utter destruction. Now, um, for th those that say that Japan was willing to surrender, that is true. However, Japan, Japan's conditions for surrender was that uh, had a number of the conditions. One of these conditions was that the imperial government be allowed to be preserved, continued. Yeah. Yeah. Another condition was that um, the Japanese government would have sole responsibility for disarming and demobilizing its own forces. <laughs> uh, 
Also, no uh, um, foreign occupation of the Japanese homelands, Korea, or Taiwan. And the Japanese government would be the ones in charge of prosecuting their own war criminals. <laughs> so oh these are the demands by the Japanese uh, that they would say, yeah, we'll surrender, but these are our demands. To which the American uh, response was like, uh, no. All right, so um, as far as the argument that uh, Japan was willing to surrender or whatever, I, I just I, I can't accept it. I mean, when you look at the fanaticism, when you look at their demands and stuff, it's just um, I, I just don't see it. Yeah. Another issue was that the um, Japanese government had sent out what was called peace feelers to the Soviet Union, and they had not yet received a reply. And the Soviet Union, with epic timing, had declared war on Japan on August 9th at midnight. That is, August 9th is when Nagasaki got nuked. So, um, um, I mean, one argument is that that um, they wanted to rush because they did not want the communist Soviet Russian to be involved in the war because then they would have a seat at the peace table. Mm. And they did not want that. Yeah. Um, and the argument can be made, if you look what happened to Germany being split during the Cold War, it had the same thing happen to Japan, with Russia, in theory, having North Japan, and, and America having South Japan. Yes. You know, it, it, it would be a very different uh, reality than what we're facing now. But I... I'm just bringing those up as as as, as uh, why the dis another reason for why the bombs were um, used on top of mm -hmm. the kamikaze attacks in Okinawa and all that. All right, so the Enola Gay is the bomber that delivered the uh, little boy to Hiroshima, and it was a B twenty nine Super Fortress. It was accompanied by two other bombers uh, that that were like. Instrumentation and photography—that's <laughs> that's their that was their mission, and one bomber was called uh, the Great Artiste. And the other bomber was called the Necessary Evil. Wow, it's dark. Yes, uh, it is dark. It's just—I mean, uh, when you're flying weapons of war, I mean, sometimes uh, you know the, the soldiers that armed them. I mean, the Enola Gay was named after the pilot's mother. Mm -hmm. which, I mean, uh, I don't know what her feelings are on the matter. Um, I, I have no clue, but to be named, to be remembered, to go down in history with your name being the one involved, you know, like that. Wow. Um, I had heard, this is a personal thing, I had heard in my growing up that the bomber, um, bombardier of uh, the Enola Gay had witnessed the destruction uh, in his rear view or what have you of the mushroom cloud, whatever, and as a result of that, whatever, committed suicide. That is not true. Uh, both bombardiers... Urban legend. Yes. Both bombardiers were unrepentant for their actions taken as necessary to uh, end the war um, sooner. And uh, I, I can understand that mindset when you do something and you don't want to feel... The, you know depression over the sh shit 
at resulting from it, yeah, I can see why you would have that mindset. But in either way, either way. Um, mm -hmm. All right. So the Enola Gay uh, it took off. It it flew uh, thirty one thousand feet. Dropped the bomb. Forty four and a half seconds later, the bomb detonated at an altitude of about nineteen hundred feet. That was what it was programmed uh, to do. I believe it had a parachute, and it, once it reached that height, it, it detonated. Um, the Enola Gay flew about 11 and a half miles uh, from Hiroshima after dropping the bomb. And the shock wave it felt, the pilot said it felt like a, um, a very close burst from anti-aircraft going off on this plane. That's how powerful it was. Yeah. The blast obliterated one, a one-mile radius blast zone. The before and after pictures the, the, of um, what Hiroshima looked like. Um, it's stark because uh, Japan had a lot of wooden buildings, uh, and so yeah, there was there were some concrete, but mostly wooden, and so you're just seeing vast emptiness of as buildings are just blown away, and uh, four square miles burned, and the and the fires were so intense it created a firestorm. By definition, a firestorm is uh, something where the fires are so intense it creates its own wind pattern. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something to be said. So the Enola Gay returns. Now, after the Enola Gay returns, you have an assessment. The, and the Japanese scientists went, they uh, returned to Tokyo, and they confirmed to the Japanese government, yeah, a nuclear weapon was used. I mean, Japan had its own physicists, you know, just like uh, Germany was um, also uh, researching the nuclear weapons. And they said the nuclear bomb uh, was used. And an admiral in the Japanese uh, military estimated that only one or two more bombs could be readied and that the war would continue after enduring that. So even after a bomb was dropped and known, the Japanese military still had this mindset of, eh, we're still going to fight. It's just, it's just crazy. Oh. So... The American code breakers, because we now, you know, had broken the Japanese uh, codes, intercepted these, this message that the Japanese, after the first bomb, had no intentions of surrendering. So plans were put into place to send in the second bomb, which was going to happen on August 11th. But because of in, impending weather, bad weather, it was moved up to August 9th. The bomb that delivered the the bomber that delivered the fat man to uh, uh, its target was called the box car, spelled B-O-C-K-S car. I guess it's a pun, anyway, mm. or someone's name. Um, it was the target. The primary target was Kakura because Hiroshima uh, was on a list of cities to be bombed. You know, it was an industrial complex. It had other military value you know, uh, targets and, and, and what have you. Um, but Kakura was the Japanese city that was the primary target for Fat Man. And a boxcar um, flew to a, lo a location and waited for its accompanying other B-29s to arrive in order for it to proceed on its bombing run. It uh, was ordered to wait no longer than 15 minutes, but he waited 40 minutes before deciding he had to move on without them. Okay. So he moves on to Kakura. 
Kukura was covered in smoke because a neighboring city, Yahata, had been bombed the day before by 224 B-29 superfortresses, and it was on fire. And the smoke from that city caused about a 70% obstruction. In addition to uh, a steelworks factory, it was put, pumping out uh, um, coal tar, yeah. what they labeled it as, so it's pumping out smoke. So the boxcar made three separate bombing runs, trying to give the bombardier a chance to locate his target and failed. He's like, nope, can't see it. So they did not want to just drop a bomb, you know, on something that was useless or in. So, and the radio guy was saying, hey, I'm getting some um, uh, chatter on the uh, Japanese fighter frequencies. So they moved on to the secondary mm -hmm. target, which was Nagasaki. The air raid sirens went off in Nagasaki at uh, 0750. And then the all clear was given at 830, 830 in the morning because they saw only two bombers and they're thinking, oh, this isn't a bombing run. These guys are just doing reconnaissance or whatever. So they, did, they just ignored it. And so people went about their daily business. And then at 11 o'clock, the fat man was dropped on Nagasaki. Now, it uh, was two miles um, off target. I, I say off target. It's not really off target. It was sort of like the, it, the the bombardier could not see his primary target, and so the secondary target of the of the city was chosen, and that was in a valley where uh, a Mitsubishi uh, Motor Works, uh, you know, for making uh, weapons of war, and uh, there was a also a military arsenal was in this um, valley called the the Urakami Valley. Yeah, we are getting towards the bottom of the hour here. Uh, so. Okay, so the, uh, the 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 bomb was dropped. The damage to Nagasaki was not as extensive. There was not as much loss of life because the bomb went off in the valley, which shielded the, the city uh, from the blast. But the the, yeah. the the factory and the air arsenal suffered uh, heavy damage. Um, I've hit most of my main points. So, yep, we're at that point. Sad to say, it's uh, war is hell, as uh, General Sherman said, and um, I, I just I just think that this is something that needs to be talked about. And thanks for for listening. Um, no, that's I, okay. I, 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 I just, yeah. So that's what this show is all about. So, uh, but no, I appreciate the info, Miles. Uh, again, you know, uh, uh, we, we don't want to be doomed to repeat our failures, right? No, and it does is inspiring me to uh, talk about a Star Trek episode. Uh, I'll just kind of end it on, on, a, on a teaser. <laughs> on the episode, I thought about the one where these two planets were at war using computers, and they had sanitized it. And uh, if you know that, that, that uh, and the Enterprise gets involved and tangled, things go completely. So this inspired me to talk about that Star Trek episode. So that'll be my next Star Trek episode. All right. Very good. Okay, well, we're coming up. I think this is Adam's final installment on the Monkey King saga from his Mythical Moment series. Mythical Moment number 15. What the heck? This show's getting old. Uh, and But yeah, so we'll be right back with our final segment and talk the Twilight Zone when we come back, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will feast your eyes on probably the most exciting invention since atomic energy. 
for Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland. This is Adam Hebert with Mythical Moment 15, Sun Wukong the Monkey King Part 7, The Apes of Wrath. Last time, Monkey found himself captured. However, all attempts at executing him had failed, with the final form, Lao Tzu's 8 trigram furnace, not only failing to kill Monkey, but refining his body and abilities to their height. Even Monkey's eyes were now enhanced, able to see through the illusions of demons. He began to wreak havoc in heaven. Thankfully, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Guan Yin, was visiting the Queen Mother. The Jade Emperor asked her to get help from the Buddha, and she agreed, poofing to travel to the west. Meanwhile, at his monastery on Vulture Peak in the west, the Buddha left his grand lecture hall fuming. His favorite disciple, Golden Cicada, had fallen asleep during his extremely important lecture about the fundamentals of Buddhist eyebrow hygiene as well as his favorite songs to sing in the bathtub. He had ordered Golden Cicada be put back into the cycle of reincarnation for a couple dozen lifetimes. That would teach his errant disciple about the importance of listening to lectures about eyebrows. Guan Yin arrived from heaven and conveyed the Jade Emperor's request to deal with the seething simian wreaking havoc in heaven. He had nothing better to do, and it might occupy him for a bit. In an instant, he and Guan Yin had poofed back to heaven. The Buddha called the monkey and asked him to come over and talk. Monkey agreed, and the Buddha asked him what it was he wanted. Monkey demanded to replace the Jade Emperor's ruler of heaven, saying that he had disrespected Monkey by tricking him repeatedly. The Buddha admitted that was out of line, and offered Monkey a challenge to get what he wanted. Monkey arched a brow and listened. Monkey would shrink himself down and get into the palm of the Buddha, and if he could get out of the Buddha's palm, Monkey could rule heaven. But if Monkey failed, he would leave heaven, never to return and roam earth forever as a monkey demon. Monkey agreed. The Buddha held up the palm of his hand and Monkey shrank down before getting into it. He then cloud somersaulted as far as he could. Soon he arrived at what he assumed was the end of the world. There, five massive odd pink pillars were standing. Monkey prepared to jump back to the Buddha to claim his prize, but he figured he'd need proof of where he'd been. And so he turned some of his hairs into an inkbrush and quickly scribbled, The great sage equal to heaven was here, before writing below it, For a good time, call Guan Yin. Before leaving, he dropped his pants to his ankles and left a steaming batch of fresh monkey urine at the pillar. He then cloud somersaulted back to the Buddha. When he asked for his prize, the Buddha shook his head. Monkey never left his palm, the Buddha claimed. Monkey said this was ridiculous, and the Buddha showed him his hand and fingers. On the middle finger was small, barely legible writing that read, The great sage equal to heaven was here, followed by, For a good time, call Guan Yin in Monkey's calligraphy. Further inspection revealed a puddle of what the Buddha hoped wasn't what he thought it was. A trickster himself, Monkey declared perfidy and reached to pull his trusty staff from behind his ear. But the Buddha quickly struck out at Monkey, his hand growing to immense size and grabbing the primate, throwing Monkey out of heaven and down to earth. Before Monkey could get up, the Buddha brought his massive hand down on top of him. With the sutra chanted, the hand turned into a mountain, rooting itself to the spot and pinning Monkey. Finally, a talisman was put on the mountain, permanently trapping Monkey. 
monkey away as a prisoner at Five Elements Mountain for 500 years. One day, he heard footsteps on the mountain and called out, only to have Guan Yin answer. He begged to be free. He had learned his lesson, he told her, but Guan Yin had bigger plans for Monkey. Monkey had a great destiny, or potential at least. She would allow him his freedom, but on one condition. Soon a monk from the Tang Empire would be passing through. If Monkey swore an oath to protect this monk on his journey to the west, she would allow Monkey his freedom. He then swore his oath, and she whispered holy orders into his ear. Sometime later, Monkey would meet the man who would help him meet his destiny and help him earn his redemption, Xuanzang, the Tang monk. And so started an epic years-long journey to the West for sacred scriptures. But that is another story. For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this has been Adam Hebert. Back to you, Kenny. Background music is Medieval Fantasy Adventure by Alexander Nakarada, who can be found at www.serpentsoundstudios.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks, Alexander. Probably, possibly, partially, partially. It's always hard to pick what the last little drop I'm going to play on a break. <laughs> oh, the history. That was from episode one. We've got, I've got to start uh, getting some more uh, good uh, drops, though. i got to expand our, our uh, new sounds. The now sound of It Came From Cleveland. Uh, welcome back, uh, Joe Santorza. Thank you. I am back. Okay. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Just like the old Tim drop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We still have that somewhere. Um, uh, uh, let me see. Oh, there it is. Here it is. Uh, we can, we can drag and drop that. There we go. <laughs> okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, there you go. And, of course, check out the Tim Caramel Show. Uh, go to Tim Caramel. TimCaramel.com, right? It is. It yeah. is indeed. So, very cool. So, uh, and, of course, thank you, Miles, for uh, the dark uh, but informative history of uh, the uh, fat man and little boy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just, yeah, history sometimes is unkind. No, that's okay. I mean, we talk about uh, uh, fake horror, and you talk about real horror, so it's an even trade. Yeah, right? that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Miles. Just a little note: my my father was almost was on an LCT uh, in the South Pacific during World War II, and he was on his way to invade Japan. They oh, were more wow. than halfway there, and always told me that he would have been one of the first to be killed on a landing beach in Japan. Oh, boy. And uh, I was not born yet. So apparently I'm an atomic child. That That's a fair statement, yeah. Yep. Wow. So, <laughs> so there, there you, you go. go. A little uh, personal history. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, again, thank you, Michelle, for doing the deep dive on all the birthdays for us. Uh, you really, uh, I, I just want to let all of our listeners know that Michelle, she's really the backbone of this show. Without her, we wouldn't have uh, nearly as much to talk about uh, every week uh, on the show. She really, really digs her heels in and does a lot of research for us. Oh, I'm, I'm blushing now. Thank you. Um, Aww, yay, I'm, I made her blush. But what, like, what I would like to say is I'd rather have President Bartlett than Greg Stilson any day. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so, that's a reference for our Stephen King fans out there. There you go. <laughs> all right, everybody. Well, speaking of Stephen King, he didn't write this Twilight Zone episode. Uh <laughs> The, and, well, let's start it off. We got the intro for it. One for the Angels, Season 1, Episode 2. We're backtracking because, obviously, there was a summer break for new Twilight Zone episodes uh, 61 years ago. So, we, when we started this show, uh, we were, uh, the, the Twilight Zone, uh, we we, um, we started, like, mid-season uh, with the Twilight Zone, or late in the season, rather. So, uh, we're, we, we backtrack. We did Episode 1 some time ago. Uh, where is everybody? And now, this is one for the angels. Here uh, here we go. Take it away, Rod. Right here, ladies and gentlemen. Special July cleanup sale. Lovely things. Calamine lotion. Good for sunburns. Mr. Farid, how about binoculars? Street scene. Summer. The present. Man on the sidewalk named Lou Bookman, age 60-ish. Occupation, pitchman. Lou Bookman, a fixture of the summer, a rather minor component to a hot July, a nondescript, commonplace little man whose life is a treadmill built out of sidewalks. But in just a moment, Lou Bookman will have to concern himself with survival, because as of three o'clock this hot July afternoon, he'll be stalked by Mr. Death. Not Mr. Death. So, uh, so yeah, uh, this is a fun little episode. Um, it's uh, it, it's it, it's one of those ones that really stands out uh, as you know, classic Twilight Zone. I don't think it gets as much attention as a lot of the other ones do, um, but uh, it it's really a classic episode, and of course uh, the. Uh, Who's the actor who plays uh, uh, Mr. Bookman in this? Edwin. Or Edwin. Edwin. Yeah. Keenan Wynn's father. <laughs> oh, Keenan yeah. Wynn's father. Really? No shit. Yes. There so, wow. And, of course, Keenan Wynn. Well, there's no law against dropping dead. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, well, Wynn himself was a great character actor. I mean, he was in a lot of things in the black and white era. Yeah. Uh, I think we covered him in... Uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight. Yes, uh, that's right. Did that's that right. earlier. We certainly, certainly did. Um, and, uh, 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 oh, Joe, you'll be happy to know I got a f several DVD copies of some, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, the, what is it? The, the series that came before Twilight Zone that you like, um, Oh, One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond. Yeah. I got some DVD copies of some single episodes. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and I also I just picked up a Twilight Zone Christmas episodes uh, uh, DVD sealed the other day, so we're gonna list that uh, in in the lead up to Christmas. We have a lot of Christmas crap, um, a lot of weird Christmas stuff. 
Uh, but yeah, so so this one, uh, you know, so Mr. Death is stalking him. Uh, Mr. Bookman's time is up. Uh, there's a guy lurking uh, on the, you know, on the steps when he's uh, he's selling products, um, and uh, he, he's he's friends with all the kids in town. Uh, they all love him, and he's got some pretty cool toys. Joe, one of those uh, little wind-up toys looked kind of familiar, didn't it? Yes, it did. It looked like a little Robbie the Robot, didn't it? Sure did. Sure did. Yeah, so, I had well, one. I'd love to have one of those. That'd be great to put on my shelves. Um, and uh, and Michelle, you know, he, he gives some toys to some of the, the neighborhood kids and says, hey, we're going to have ice cream after dinner. You know, just, I mean, just what a great guy. Yep. Oh, yeah, natural with the kids. Very yeah. much so. And uh, they seem to love him, too. And even if he didn't sell them anything, they were there just to, you know, he was there to brighten up their day. Yeah. So, and Miles, did you uh, get a chance to check out this episode? Are you familiar? I sadly did not. Okay. Well, I've read uh, the plot, though. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Bookman, uh, uh, then, uh, after hanging out with the kids for a bit, uh, gives them some toy robots, promises them ice cream after dinner, goes into his apartment, and he's greeted by Mr. Well, hold on a second. Let me, let me do this right. I have an effects processor here. <laughs> <laughs> so we do that, and we do, where is it, direct? And let me see. Gosh, it's been a while since I've done this. Mr. Death. There we go. <laughs> you know, this is the second appearance of Mr. Death in uh, Twilight Zone. Do you remember... Uh, uh, there was a uh, an episode with an older lady in her apartment that was visited by Mister. Was Dick. he the same actor? No, no, it oh, was okay. Robert Redford. Oh, interesting. Robert Redford played Mister. Death. Interesting. All right. Well, so mm -hmm. here we go. Uh, so he he sees Mister. Death, and they have a bit of a conversation. Hey, you you're the man I saw on the sidewalk today. You you were writing in a book. You are Lou Bookman, aren't you? That's right, Louis J. Bookman. Is there something I can show you? Maybe something in collar stays? I'll get the... Uh, no, no, Mr. Bookman. I'm not here to buy anything. Oh. Now let's get to business, shall we? Louis J. Bookman, age 69, right? I'll be 70 in September. Mm. Occupation pitchman, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> are you a census taker? Born New York City, 1890. That's right, 1890. Father Jacob Bookman, mother Flora Bookman. Father's place of birth, Detroit, Michigan. Mother's place of birth, Syracuse, New York, right? That's right. <laughs> My goodness, you, you got it all down in that book there. Hmm? Yes, we have to keep these things efficient. Now, today is the 19th of July, and your departure is at midnight tonight. My departure? <laughs> oh, excuse me. Hi, Maggie. The key's bent, Lou. Can you fix it? Oh, sure. Come on right in. Come on in. <laughs> Let me see it there. Well, there's your trouble right there. That See that little cogwheel? Well, you've been pushing in that key when you were winding it, you see? See, now look, now it's all right. <laughs> I'd introduce you two, only I don't know your name. No need. I think I got it now, Lou. Mm -hmm. 
This gentleman came here to ask me a lot of questions. What gentleman? That gentleman. What gentleman? Mr. Bookman, she can't see me or hear me. Why not? Why not what, Lou? Well, why can't you see him or hear him? See who, Lou? It works great now, Lou. Thanks an awful lot. See you after supper, huh? Well, now, wait a minute. You haven't forgot your manners. Aren't you going to say goodbye? Oh, yeah. Goodbye, Lou. Thanks a lot. No, no, I, I mean to the gentleman there. <laughs> oh, it's a game. The Invisible Man. Goodbye, Invisible Man. See you after supper, Lou. I love the Dr. Seuss reference in there to uh, C. Lou Who, Cindy Lou Who, uh, abbreviation there. Uh, so, <laughs> or is she talking about C. Hulu because she got a subscription to Hulu? Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Puns abound. Don't have to be a dad to make dad jokes. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that was one of his little buddies, uh, a little girl, who uh, he fixed the wind-up robot for. And... Um, so there's a lot more interaction with Mr. Death and um, Mr. Bookman. And uh, he finally comes to the stark realization that he's, he's, he's got he's to die. He has to go with, with Mr. Death at uh, midnight, right? Um, and uh, which is odd because it seems like the midnight's used a couple times here, which we'll get to. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So uh, he starts looking for an out, and there's like uh, like three different rules that that can or or, or reasons that you can get out of uh, dying, and uh, so being the the pitch man, the salesman, he's he's looking for a way to get out of this whole thing, Joe. Yes, he is, and um, but the first <laughs> so, uh, the first two the first two rules didn't apply to him. No, but the third one uh, did, and that was that uh, he had some, uh, shall we say, unfinished business that was of major importance. For instance, like if he was a, a scientist who uh, was on the verge of a great discovery, mm -hmm. they would make an exception. So he yeah. had to come up with something. Yes, and we do have. Uh, <laughs> he came up with <laughs> a couple. He came up with a couple. Uh, Couple pretty la pretty lame ones for at first. I know. <laughs> uh, so especially when he sees the toy helicopter. What's the third category? <laughs> I don't think you're qualified here either. Unfinished business of a major nature. Well, you don't have any unfinished business, do you, Mr. Bookman? Ah, oh, but I do. Indeed, I do. That's it. You see, I yes, yes, I I have some unfinished business. Unfinished business, yes. I've never flown in a helicopter, that's it. I have never flown in... Insufficient, Mr. Bookman. Anything else? Now, you look here. I've lived in this room for 21 years, and you keep popping up in corners of the room that I've never even seen before. Would you please stay in one place? Is there anything else, Mr. Bookman? Yes, yes. I have never seen a Zulu war dance. Now, that's the answer right there. See, you'll have to give me a couple of months and let me go over there to that Zulu country. And it, no? No. Unfinished business of a major nature. Something a man has yearned for and something he might accomplish given an extension. Well, there is one thing. What is it, Mr. Bookman? 
Well, between you and me, I, I never made a truly big pitch. I mean, I mean a, a big pitch. A pitch big enough to, for the skies to open up. You know, a, a, a pitch for the angels. Of course, that wouldn't mean very much to you, but it would mean a great deal to me. It would mean that for one moment in my whole life, I would have done something successful. It would mean that maybe, that maybe the children would be very proud of me. The children? Yes, yes. I've always had quite a fondness for children, you know. Yes, that's, that's all here in the record. Problem here, Mr. Bookman, is that you'd require a delay until... Uh... Until I make a pitch. You know, the kind of pitch I was talking to you about there. One for the angels, you mean. That's right. One for the angels. I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Bookman, but no. <laughs> but <laughs> no. Uh, but Michelle, Mr. Death does kind of come around, doesn't he? Does. Um, it's it's like a little give and take, but yeah, there's there, there's a little bit of uh, he he's he's willing to give uh this pitchman a little bit of a of a of a chance. Yeah. And and but he keeps uh, but he's like uh, Joe. He keeps popping up and lurking and bothering him, uh, trying to throw him off his game too. Yeah, I know. It's he. He's sort of like. Yeah, he's he's sort of like uh, playing with. Yeah, I've had managers like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Like um. So. Uh. But. Uh. You know. So. So. Uh. uh about. Little, little more than midway through the story, uh, Michelle, uh, uh, Mister Bookman makes a startling and uh, scary discovery. Oh, oh yeah, that um, that uh, I'm, I'm not sure the exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> the little girl, the little girl that he fixed the wind-up robot for. Uh, That's right. Oh, after after they make the decision and. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bookman thinks he's pulling a fast one on Death, and then um, Death says, okay, you won this. And then the little girl that uh, he's friends with gets in an accident out in the street and falls into a coma. Here we go. There's the clip for that. Hello? Yeah? Hello, who's that man? Do you see him? Yes, Lou. She couldn't see him before. Hey, wait a minute. You can't take her. No, sorry, you can't take her. Now listen, I'll go. Never mind the pitch. I don't even want to wait. I'll go right now. You can't take her. I'll go with you at... Just walks away. His little buddy, the little girl, got hit by a car. She sees Mr. Death. Her time is up. And Joe, he says, uh, uh, the midnight comes up again from Mr. Death. Well, yeah. Uh, remember, the original uh, agreement was he was going to give his greatest pitch. Pitch to the angels. Mm -hmm. um, so Mr. Death comes and he says, well, in 15, the, the doctor leaves the house saying that she will 
the little girl will face a crisis by midnight. Yeah. And uh, so there, Mr. Death comes back. It's about quarter to midnight. And he said he had business inside. And uh, Edwin said, wait a minute. One more thing. And he opens up his little case and starts his pitch to the guy. Yep. And this is uh, and and this was too irresistible, and I know we're probably going to go over a little bit, but I got the entire pitch because it's just magnificent. <laughs> so it is, it is. Here it is, one for the angels. This is what the title of the show is all about. Uh, the title of the episode is all about. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will feast your eyes on probably the most exciting invention since atomic energy, a simulated silk so fabulously conceived as to mystify even the ancient Chinese silk manufacturers. An almost unbelievable attention to detail. A piquant interweaving of cosmos softness. Mr. Death is entranced by this pitch. Witness, if you will, a demonstration of tensile strength. Feel that if you will, sir. Unbelievable, isn't it? As strong as steel, yet as fragile and delicate as Shantung silk. Picture, if you will, 300 years of fact-breaking research and labor to develop this, the absolute ultimate in thread. And what would you expect to pay for this fabulous I say fabulous, incredible, amazing development of the tailor's art. Would you pay $30 a spore? $25, $20, $10? Or, well, very well you might, sir, if you were trying to purchase this at stores. But this fantastic thread is not available in stores. It is smuggled in by oriental birds, especially <laughs> trained for ocean travel, Asian. each carrying a minute quantity in a small satchel underneath their ruby throats. It takes 832 crossings to supply enough thread to go around one spool. And tonight, at my special Get Acquainted introductory mid-July hot summer sale, I offer you this fabulous thread, not at $20 a spool, not at 10 not at 5 but at the ridiculously low price of 25 cents a spool. I'll take my all your hair. God! I'll take all your hair! Static eradicator will fit any standard radio, suntan oil, eczema powder, razors, athletes, feet destroyer. How about some nice simulated cashmere socks? All right, all right, all right. I'll take it out. All right. right <clears throat> and now for the piece de resistance. An item never before offered in this or any other country. One guaranteed live human man servant. How's that? For what I ask, you, sir, receive a willing, capable, whirly, highly sophisticated, wonderfully loyal right-hand man to use in any capacity you see fit. How's that? Me, How's that? Louis J. Bookman, <laughs> the first model of his kind. He comes to you with an absolute guarantee, all parts interchangeable, with a certificate of four years serviceability. He eats little, he sleeps little, he rests only occasionally, and there he is at your elbow, at your beck and call whenever needed. Mr. Bookman, you are a persuasive man. 
<laughs> I challenge any other store, wholesale house, or industry to even come close to matching what I offer you here. Because, my dear man, I offer you, I offer you. It's midnight. It's midnight and I've missed my appointment. Sedatives every three hours, Mrs. Polanski. She'll be all right. She just needs a lot of rest now. She's all right. One minute past twelve, Mr. Bookman. And you made me miss my appointment. Thank God. A most persuasive pitch, Mr. Bookman. An excellent pitch. Yes, it's quite a pitch. Very effective. It's the best I've ever done. It's a kind of a pitch I always wanted to make. A big one. A pitch so big, so big that the sky would open up. <laughs> pitch for the angels. That's right, a pitch for the angels. Well, I, I guess it's time for me now. As per our agreement. Well... I'm ready. After you, Mr. Hoffman. Oh, excuse me, I forgot something. I'll be back in a minute. You never know who might need something up there. Up there? Up there, Mr. Bookman. You made it. Oh. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it is. And and thank you, Michelle and Francie, for making the, the observations about uh, who Mr. Death was. He was the... the uh, go ahead. Uh, tell everybody who he was. The mayor everybody loves to hate in Jaws. Yeah. And Rhonda, one Rhonda. Priests, yeah, one of the priests in Amityville Horror. Oh, okay. Mm. I, uh, was that... Uh, he played Ron DeSantis in uh, uh, Jaws. <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah. No, very I'm cool. talking mayor, not governor. <laughs> well, I mean, well, you know, I know, I understand. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, just saying, he's about as responsible. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So, so that was a really fun episode, and, and and I love that. You know, it's like you can't cheat death, but eh, maybe you can do a little bit of a workaround, right? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> uh, but, no, yeah, very classic episode. Uh, and, and, again, um, if anybody, um, I, I, you know, and I was trying to figure out how I knew uh, Ed Wynn's voice. I've seen his face before, but his voice was standing out to me, and he was the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. That's the one Disney cartoon I'm okay. kind of familiar with. Sorry. So yeah, so that's uh, a, a very distinctive uh, uh, voice. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's uh, that was a fun episode. And uh, Miles, even though you didn't get to see it, do uh, you feel like you've experienced it? Yeah, yeah, that's a classic. classic. Uh, that, I, I like that. Uh oh, are you your mic's on? All right, oh, you're good sorry. now. Uh, so yes, the yeah classic. Um, uh, Twilight Zone. That that was a that was a good one. Yeah. 
So, uh, well, I'll tell you what. It's that time, everybody. We're we're already overtime right now, so we gotta we gotta wrap things up. Uh, start rolling end credits by Kill the Hippies. That's what this 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 is called. That's what we play at the end of every Can show. I mention a quick guy that cheated death. Sure. Tsumo Yamaguchi survived both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After Hiroshima, he went back to his home city of Nagasaki and survived both. Oh wow! Yeah, he wow. uh, he died. Crap! Not that long ago. Well, you know that that's one uh, I guess bit of happy news out of all that, right? Yeah, he lived to an old age. Yeah, in his nineties. Yeah. Um. All right, very good. And uh, Michelle, uh, yeah, thanks again. I really appreciate all the hard work you've been doing. Uh, you're, you're keeping the show fun and and interesting, and uh, uh, you're a good col good collaborator. Well, thank you. I, I, I try I try to keep I try to keep things fresh. I'm trying not to repeat too many trailers. Sometimes it's hard, but uh, oh, that's uh, okay. There's a uh, I mean, we were we're gonna repeat stuff on the show from time to time. Uh, but you know that's 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 called warm fuzzies, not not repeats. Yeah, and it, it's going down memory lane. It's really really cool. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah, yeah. Thanks everybody. Um, just be safe out there. Uh, things are a little tense down here, in Florida ways, and we're just trying to uh, keep our heads, you know, above water, and yep. uh, hope we can ride out the mess down here. So, uh, but we're good, everyone. We're not sick. Everything's good. So, yes, yes. Just wanted to let you all know. All right, Joe, what do you got? Yes. Oh, we're going to have a Tim Coromall show on Sunday. Okay. And, uh, okay. <laughs> where's, where's that? Where's that Tim? Tim <laughs> okay. There you go. For the show, I have dug up an old Da Vinci sketch for our show art. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Can't I'll wait just for show it. you. So. Oh, cool. There's a. Yes. Me and Photoshop found this old Da Vinci sketch. I'm sure you did. So, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, so anyway, wow, is she still around? Huh? Uh, is she still around? What the hell? Uh, she's running like for senator or congressman up there. Yeah. Yeah, or, she's such a. But we're gonna have fun she's with her. She's a nice her. lady. All right, <laughs> yeah. we we gotta go. Uh, thanks everybody for <laughs> hanging out. We'll see everybody next Friday. Go buy some movies from me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Especially that uh, that uh, uh, one step beyond uh, set. You can't find that. Okay, that's right. 